Live. Live. Live from This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast. Here's New York Sports Talk and Long Suffering Fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Got a good show for this week. Hope you had a good 4th of July weekend. Lots of barbecues, lots of baseball. We are talking some basketball on the podcast today. The NBA Finals matchup is set. The Phoenix Suns taking on the Milwaukee Bucks. Not the matchup most people would have predicted at the beginning of the, of the playoffs. You're joined today by Sports Grid's Kevin Walsh Jr. going to break down the NBA Finals. How some betting angles for you as well, because if the series... Not too sexy in terms of team power. I mean, you do have Giannis Antetokounmpo if he's healthy. You have Chris Paul. Apart from that, not a lot of big names. So the betting guy might be the way to go here. We'll talk to Kevin about that. Make sure you're locked in at the end of the show for the Sky Guys, Pete Constor and Nick Friday. We're back. We're doing the final season of the Clone Wars. A lot of fun and a great concert with these guys. That's coming up at the end of the podcast. But we'll get all started this week's opening tip where we talk about the takeaways from the Subway Series with the Mets and the Yankees. And we have quite a few right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, we are back this week's opening tip, talking about the Subway Series and recording here on Sunday night after the Yankees salvaged the weekend by winning 4-2 in the finale doubleheader. And coming into the series, think about this. Both the Mets and the Yankees were scuffling quite a bit. The Yankees had two days off, thanks to the rain out Friday, after the disastrous loss to the Angels on Wednesday night. And the Mets, the bats had been cold for a while. They see their division lead shrink down to two and a half games, entering the doubleheader on Sunday, Saturday in the Bronx. And the Mets came out of the weekend feeling a lot better about themselves. They win two out of three, explode for 18 runs of the first two games of the series. Big innings, thanks to the return of Brandon Nimmo, who really has been the spark plug for this offense. They look so much more crisp with Nimmo at the top of that lineup, getting on base and setting the table for everybody else. He is a big key to the offense. The Mets really got some gutty performances out of that group, especially the three-run inning on Saturday, the five-run inning in the sixth to put this game away. And you know what? Credit to them. It's a game they had to get to get out the snide. Tywon Walker pitched great again. Got snubbed for the All-Star game, which I was expecting, but very disappointed nonetheless. Hopefully, the league makes this right and takes him when Jacob DeGrom opts not to pitch because he's scheduled to pitch the Sunday before the All-Star game. He is not going to do it. He said he might not even go to the game. I don't blame him. At the same time, Walker should go. Hopefully they take him first place. If you're the Mets right now, you're feeling pretty good because the lineup is coming back together. Brandon Nimmo is back now. Jonathan VR came off the injured list on Sunday. The only guy left from the rehabbing offensive crew is J.D. Davis, and he's down in Syracuse around a couple days. Ready to talk about getting him back for the Pirates series this weekend. The Met offense... You can assimilate everyone back in there. 
see what you need at the break. But they have an interesting week ahead. They got the Brewers coming in for three on Monday through Wednesday. Brewers have been red hot. They won 11 in a row, leading the Central. This could be a potential playoff preview for the Mets. Then they had the Pirates coming in for four, and the Pirates are terrible. The Pirates are one of the worst teams in the National League. You're the Mets. You're in first right now about four games. You want to finish the week's first half strong. Go five and two this week. Win two out of three against the Brewers. Win three out of four against the Pirates. Head to the break at a solid 48 and 39. That's a good spot to be in. The Yankees, on the other hand, they have a lot of issues. And I think it's the first time I've really been completely focused on them because they were playing the Mets. I've watched all three of these games pretty much from wire to wire. This Yankee team is not good. The more you watch this team play, and trust me, I got a nice sample size with a Garrett Cole experience, a role as Chapman, the offense. This lineup is putrid. And I don't know why, because the names in there are good names. Aaron Judge has been great all year. Luke Voigt had a big year. Glaber Torres, Gio Urshela, John Carlos Stanton. It's not like they're the injury-riddled Mets who are running out the B squad with all the minor leaguers. They are healthy. They are extremely one-dimensional. This team is built entirely on right-handed power hitters who are supposed to hit home runs. But if you not hit home runs, it does not go well because they are slow and they hit the ball on the ground too much. That's a big issue, especially against a team at the Mets who are very good defensively and shift very well. So there were a lot of opportunities to ground ball, double plays, wasted opportunities for rallies, so on and so forth. The game of the weekend that defined this thing for the Yankees was the doubleheader game one on Sunday afternoon. They get lucky breaks early. The Yonks miss a call. Lindor boots a grounder. They're up 4-1 in the fourth inning. Garrett Cole cannot get out of the inning. And he's having a very bad day. He's had two rough starts in a row. Gives up a total of nine runs combined against the Mets and the Red Sox. The thing with Garrett Cole that was scary is the breaking stuff was flat. It was so flat that the Mets could basically spit on it and say, give me the fastball. This goes back again, the sticky stuff. With Garrett Cole, you wonder, was the sticky stuff more of a big deal than we let on? This is something that, in the long run, you have to figure out a way to be effective without it. This is similar a bit to what happened with CeCe Sabathia when he lost the velocity a couple of years back towards the end of his career. He had to reinvent himself. Garrett Cole can still be a very good pitcher in this league. He has to figure out how to do it, and he really needs to for the Yankees to justify that contract. The scarier thing for the Yankees, the ninth inning, Aroldis Chapman, who, by the way, was a big reason why they blew that game on Wednesday night because he comes in, walk, walk, homer, and he ties the game up. Comes in, up a run, 5-4, heading to the ninth, heading to the seventh inning. I hate, by the way, I hate the seventh inning doubleheaders. This is still so, so stupid for the fact we're splitting it up and doing two seven-inning games. But I digress. Chapman comes in, and he's facing Pete Alonso. Up a run. And Pete Alonso has been struggling mightily to this point. And the one thing that he had been struggling with for a couple of weeks now is chasing those high fastballs. And they're irresistible. He's not making contact with them. If you are the Yankees, you are sitting there going, okay, just pound Pete up high and the game. Or at least get the first out. They get ahead in the count. And what does Chapman do? 
He grooves a slider down in Pete's hitting zone. Home run, tie game. Next thing up, hits Michael Gafford on the back, walks Jeff McNeil, gets pulled from the game, and from there, the inning falls apart. You have Pilar bloop a hit against Lucas Lutke. You had the Jose Peraza at bat where he has the fan interference assisted double. Brand Nimmo with the big hit. And before you know, it's 10 to 5 and the game's over. Your role this Chapman situation is alarming for the Yankees because he's one who has hit a major slump. The point that Aaron Boone said after that game that he now has to be closer by committee for a bit until Chapman can earn his way back into that role. The thing I did not understand with the Yankees game match it there in game two was Chad Green comes in in the sixth inning. The Mets had a threat going. Gets out of it on two pitches. He comes out of the game. We asked why after the game, according to the reporters, and Aaron Boone said that they were still trying to piece together the night game in game number two, and Chad Green was a part of that. Here's the problem with that. There's two flaws to this line of thinking. Number one, and I will acknowledge that Chad Green was great in the nightcap. He pitched three scoreless innings to close the game out. Had an immaculate ninth inning. A seventh inning. I, again, I hate the doubleheaders. Two flaws the argument. Number one, you cannot worry about game two in game one. You have a closer who's shaky. You're putting in a one-run lead. Chad Green has two has gotten two pitches and gotten out for you. Let him finish that game. That's the way you got to play that. You have to win the game that's in front of you, not the game that's in three hours. The second problem here, how are the New York Yankees trying to piece together a game when they had two days rained out in a row before yesterday? How is that possible? How are you so unprepared? That a Garrett Cole short outing means you have to completely throw out your game plan for the second game. You're telling me you couldn't have Chad Green nail this one down and save Chapman for the night game? That would have made such a poor decision. The other one that boggled my mind, they got away with this one, was in the second game, Nestor Cortez was cruising. He was dominating the Mets through, and he's fun to watch because he has all of his herky-jerky motions. He fast pitches, he slow pitches, yeah. He's putting his one leg behind the other. He's a joy to watch pitch. He's cruising. Gives up a one-out double of Dom Smith. And then all of a sudden, because he's 60 pitches, Aaron Boone's running out of the dugout to get Darren O'Day. Peter Lyles agrees with a two-run homer. That's one where it's probably, oh, well, the game plan said we had to get him 60 pitches out of him and get him out. He was dominating. If you're making a move where the other team says, thank you, that's not good. And this Yankee team, I'm watching it. It's just, you know, they're old in some areas. They are very slow. They are very one-dimensional. They do not do much well in terms of fundamental play. They don't run the base as well. They have no defensive range. They can't do much offensively other than hit the ball 500 yards. This team is very flawed. And the problem with the way the roster is constructed and the money they've sunk into guys like Giancarlo Stanton and Cole and so on and so forth, there's not much you can do to fix it. To me, 
the way they're going about this in terms of saying, oh, everything's going to be fine. These guys are going to play better. That's not going to do it. This roster is fundamentally flawed. In my opinion, this season, assuming it does not go according to plan, and if you think this is going to be some sort of magical turnaround that all of a sudden they're going to be in the playoffs, I got a bridge to sell you. Since the start of 2020, this team has played 145, 100, excuse me, 143 regular season games. They are 75 and 68. That is not an awe-inspiring brand of baseball. Let's say right now the second wild card in the American League. It's going to take you at least 92 wins to get to the postseason. At least. And this is a tough spot because, again, the AL East is loaded. You have the two teams out west. You have potentially the Indians being a threat in the central. Let's say 92. And I think I'm being very generous low with that. 92 wins gets the job done. The Yankees are 42 and 41. To get to 92 wins, they have to win 50 games and can only lose 29 the rest of the way. What part of this team that you've seen for the last year or so makes you think they have that kind of run in them? Especially a lot of games left against the Red Sox, especially games against the Houston and Seattle this week. And Seattle's played very well. The Mariners have heated up. They got themselves going with that sweep of Tampa a couple weeks back. They're in the thick of things in the AL West. And the Ashes are the hottest team on the planet. Where is this run coming from? I will tell you this right now. The Mariner-Astro road trip is going to be tough. And you come out of the break, you have two big series of the Red Sox in about 10 days. If you get out of that and you are not significantly improving the standings, you have some soul searching to do. Because this is not an easily fixable solution. At the end of the day, I think missing the playoffs is the likeliest path for the Yankees here. I think you have two options to get better. Number one, if you believe in the players, you change out this coaching staff. Because it says something about Aaron Boone that in the three years since he took over, this group has not progressed like they should have. Labor Torres has stepped back, which is alarming. Gary Sanchez has not been consistent. Clint Frazier has not developed into a star. A lot of these guys have not gone forward. And if you believe in the talent in the room, change out the coaching staff, and maybe you bring in a new staff you feel can get more out of these guys. That's option one. Option two is you just blow up as much as you can. That might mean trading Aaron Judge, who can get you the most back and is in a walk year. I know the Yankees don't want to keep him, but again, what options do you have? Glaber Torres' trade value is non-existent. Clint Frazier's trade value is non-existent. Same thing said for Gary Sanchez. I mean, he's been hot for a little bit, but nobody's going to forget how inconsistent he's been prior to that. This roster is so flawed, so one-dimensional. You have to think of ways to make this better. You can't run it back another year and say, okay, this year was the pandemic year. We'll get back together. No, you can't do that. You need to figure out something to make this group work. And I think they're probably going to choose door number one just because it's the easiest one to sell and say, hey, you know, here's our new skipper. He's going to get more out of the players. We're going to win next year. I think next year, if they do not make it this year, and I'm, again, 
A lot could happen in about half a season. But nothing we've seen to this point makes you think anything will change in a significant way. When you get down to brass tacks, I think the Panther could take his door number one. And then if this thing does not get righted by the end of next season, all hell could break loose. Because Brian Cash's contract is up after 2022. At that point, would you trust him to steer this ship back in the right direction? It would be in the best interest of the organization to just do a clean reset, get as much as you can out. The fact this core has not gotten where we thought they could after 2017 is alarming. And Yankee fans, if you do blow it up, I'm saying it's something that might have to happen here. Don't expect it's going to be as easy 2016. You trade off three guys, got a bunch of projects, all of a sudden you got right back in the mix. Rebuilds are not easy. They are painful. You have an advantage that you have money and you can buy pieces to help shorten the process, but you have to develop guys. You have to build a more diverse skill set of a team. Simply mashing the baseball is not going to work anymore. We've seen that. The Mets made them look like clowns this weekend with how athletic they were and how diverse their lineup approach is. The Mets had seven lefties in their lineup at Yankee Stadium. The Yankees had one. That's not going to work. That's not playing your part and playing to how you should be playing with this team. There's a lot of work done for the Yankees. We will see what happens with them going forward. We'll talk more baseball next week on the podcast as the baseball beat joins me to catch up what's going on at the All-Star break. But up next, we're going to get into the NBA Finals with Sports Grid's Kevin Walsh right after this. Basketball is my favorite sport. I like the way to dribble up and down the court. Just like I'm the king on the microphone. So it's Dr. J and Moses Malone. I like slam dunks and taking it to the hoop. My favorite play is the alley oop. I like the pick and roll. I like the give and go. Cause it's basketball of Mr. Curtis All right, we are back here talking NBA Finals on the Just End the Suffering podcast. And it's not the series most people thought we had, but it's all some fun. Join me today, one of our favorite guys over at Sports Grid and a big NBA guy, Kevin Walls, is here. Kevin, how are you? Good, Mike. Good. Excited uh, to be back here, man. Uh, excited to talk a little bit about these NBA Finals. Yeah, and for the audience, we are recording on 4th of July, so even though we not get to see the hot dog eating contest because ESPN had much technical legends, we can still talk about the NBA. <laughs> yeah, I saw that a little bit on, on Twitter. I wasn't watching myself, but apparently everything went haywire, but Joey broke a record in the over. So you take it for what it is. Yeah, I feel like with Joey Chester, you always bet the over. Yeah, it feels safe. Really, feel like that's <laughs> been a safe bet for like a decade now. Yeah, it's only about a decade, but speaking of bets, like, what kind of odds do you think you could have had beginning of the playoffs that like, you're getting a Milwaukee Bucks Phoenix Suns NBA <laughs> final? <laughs> you could have got a pretty good one. You definitely could have. I, I know the FanDuel Sportsbook does offer an NBA Finals exact result market uh, where you probably, you know, you could have picked the Suns over the Bucks or the Bucks over the Suns. I actually think they even allow you to parlay the conference winner. So you could have got quite the payout. Uh, even if you know both teams are going to be continuing to creep up the board, you still could have got quite the payout, even at the start of the playoffs, for this to be uh, Bucks Suns. 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you could have gotten that line, especially after Kevin Durant hits that game, hits that ridiculous force in Game Five of the East, of the Eastern Conference Semis, you still make a good, pretty good penny. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, and I know we'll kind of get into the the path of of how we got here, and you know, uh, this whole NBA season, man, it's it's just been defined by injuries at, at every stop and turn. But what we've you know seen is these two teams aren't an exception to that. They've certainly both had had their fair share as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this whole playoff situation just feels like we thought the bubble might be the weird playoff spot where we weren't sure if it counted. But like this one, when every team seems to have a big star get hurt or bad performances, I feel like this is the more of the anomaly playoffs than the bubble was. It's it's quite honestly, Mike, it's not close. And don't let anybody tell you or anybody listening otherwise. It's not close. The, the idea that the bubble would where everybody and basically had fully healthy teams, right? would be the place with the asterisk as opposed to a record-setting amount of all-stars being injured and missing games during a postseason is absolutely ridiculous. And if you look at it, like, again, give these teams their credit. We'll be breaking down the NBA Finals. We'll be watching it. We'll be betting on it. But does anybody actually think that fully healthy, these are the two best teams in their respective conference? I know nobody thinks the Bucks are better than that. So that isn't even something that I have to sell people on. And as it pertains to Phoenix, they were down 2-1 to the Lakers and that Anthony Davis was injured. And they really did not make quick work of a Clippers team that was missing top three player Kawhi Leonard. And we're talking about top three player in the world. I just, again, it is what it is, but the thought that the bubble was going to provide us these oddities of, oh my goodness, how is this the matchup when it's been this year and it's been pretty clear to see for a while. Yeah, I think this year is just we're kind of doomed for that because all the games and the compressed schedule, some of those teams, the COVID postponements, having all the makeups, the wear and tears felt obvious, and the Clippers are probably the biggest victim of it, in my opinion, besides, obviously, Anthony Davis' situation. But Kawhi Leonard getting hurt in the second round of the playoffs there. Paul George has said, and Paul George balled out in that series against the Suns, that if Kawhi's healthy, they're winning that series. I think I agree with him. Oh, they absolutely are winning that series. The, the only difference is, Again, if we had fully health, they wouldn't have been playing Phoenix. They'd have been playing the other L.A. team. They would have finally been able to get that matchup, which is what we had been waiting for. Again, those two teams to start the year we thought were the two best, and I really have no evidence, and I know Phoenix is the one representing the West, that suggests that the two L.A. teams weren't the best squads. LeBron James was out there like inventing dance moves on Jay Crowder because that's how comfortable that they were moving past that Phoenix team. They were 100% moving past that Suns team. And I mean, the Clippers went out there without Kawhi and embarrassed the one-seeded Utah Jazz. And I know Utah, again, everybody had levels of injured, right? Like Chris Paul's probably not operating at 100%. Donovan Mitchell wasn't operating at 100%. But we're talking about guys missing games. Kawhi out a series. Anthony Davis playing, what, five minutes? and clearly being able to tell, like, oh, that man can't play basketball and being immediately removed. And, and then even right on the east of it all, no Kyrie, missed Harden for X amount of time. I mean, we even just saw Giannis go down, right, and miss one of the games. And I know we're going to have to talk a lot about that, which makes me worry. I guess Phoenix has the most injury luck because they had to put the kibosh on Giannis. It's, it's just, it's all we've been talking about since the season has started, Mike. It's just all been injuries. It really has. I mean, Phoenix's thing, Chris Paul has the hand, and he's in, he's in the health and safety protocol, so I think they got a little lucky there. But, like, 
The one thing, you know, as a Phoenix is obviously, like, they've been incredible since the bubble last year when they showed up in Orlando. They went 8-0 down there, and they carried over getting Chris Paul into this season. So what's the big thing you know about Phoenix so far, watching them go through these playoffs? You know, something you just said there, Mike, though, is important. And again, Chris Paul has been phenomenal for this team. But an underrated part is the fact that Phoenix showed massive growth in that bubble. Also, that season, again, think about it, right? They were close to actually being able to crack into one of the playoff spots. They missed DeAndre Ayton for 25 games due to a PED suspension that season. We all can tell how valuable DeAndre Ayton is, right? So if that didn't happen, like the Suns probably make the playoffs last year. You pair that with just natural growth of Ayton's game, Booker's game, and including a healthy Chris Paul, it's easy to see then how kind of Phoenix starts to put these pieces together. And the one thing that you can say about this Phoenix team, that no matter what in the postseason is always valuable, is having two guys that in the crunch time of games, 100% are ready to step up and take that moment and take that shot, whether it be Chris Paul or Devin Booker. Like, if you look at the odds to win the finals MVP, those two have flip-flopped back and forth between the favorite to win it from the Phoenix Suns during different points of this postseason, you know, Devin pulling ahead with his Lakers series, Chris Paul pulling ahead with his Nuggets series, because they do really have two guys that are ready to embrace the big game and that closer role when needed. Yeah, and I think, obviously, the sentimental favorite is going to be Chris Paul, because, I mean, the dude's been one of the best players in the league for a long time. He's had a lot of bad luck in the playoffs in terms of, like, going down yeah. injuries, having his teams collapse. So he was due for some good luck, and I think it'll be fascinating to see how he plays on the, on the biggest stage. Yeah, and if you think about it, right, Chris Paul came back against the Clippers and didn't look great, perhaps just some natural rust, right? The, the health and safety protocols, they said that he was asymptomatic. So not that he was really battling off illness, but just kind of being away for even a week, right, with the playoffs and the intensity that comes with that. But by the, by the close, I mean, he played maybe the greatest half of his career, a legitimate career-high regular season or postseason, 31 points in that second half in the closeout game against the Clippers, finished with 41 total. He, he was masterful in that game. And, and that's the thing about Chris Paul and for the series overall finals experience. Jay Crowder is the only player with finals experience. And by the way, it came last year, his six games is the only finals experience that anybody on either team is bringing to the table. So it's all kind of square. So I, I, Chris Paul's never been to the finals. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. He's played in, in the big, big moments throughout his career. I wouldn't worry about that at all. It really feels odd to think about Jay Crowder being everybody going up to his locker saying, hey, what's it like playing in the finals? Like, you're the one here who's actually done it. <laughs> and the best, and, and the one thing is, right about the bubble, I would be like, hey, what's it like going on the road in the finals? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. No, I, I don't. We'll find out. We'll find out together, everybody. Yeah, we absolutely will. And I think the thing with Milwaukee is fascinating. Obviously, the first round we saw them dominate the Heat, who were never the same after the bubble last year. But the, mm. the last two series, each had some fortunate injury luck on their behalf, where this whole series mm -hmm. is Brooklyn changed and Kyrie steps on Giannis's foot and he's out for the rest of the series. And then Trey Young getting hurt game four. I think Atlanta was up 2 1. And like, that changed the complexion of that whole series. So, like, what's your big observation about Milwaukee thus far? Yeah, and again, right, Milwaukee is really no different from Phoenix. And I'll say, and this is, I'll say this, I had the Bucks beating the Nets in that series. And, you know, some people are like, hey, man, you called it. I'm like, no, I didn't. 
I was wrong. They would have been lucky to get a game, it felt like, watching that series play out. Like, the Nets were better than them. And, you know, at some point when you're going to project out next season, the Nets will rightfully be the favorites to win the NBA championship. But Milwaukee has taken advantage of the situation. Now, obviously, with Giannis going down, that, you know, was like, hey, listen, we're kind of dealing with our own issues. But as you just pointed out, well, you had Trey Young miss multiple games. And then, of course, be nowhere near 100% to the closeout. His production basically being matched by Jeff Teague, to put it into perspective. But the one thing that you'll notice with Milwaukee, that it's different than, I feel like, all their postseason runs, and this they can thank the Nets for, is the fact that Budenholzer has finally stopped going with regular season rotations for the playoffs. You need to play your stars 40-plus minutes. This is winning time. There is no time here for overusing Bryn Forbes or Thanasis as much as I love them. Giannis, Middleton, and Drew all need to be playing 40-plus. He got forced into that during the Brooklyn series because Durant and Harden never went to the bench. But he's actually now he's stuck with it. And he's stuck with it against Atlanta. And I think he'll stick with it against Phoenix. And that's important to stay on level footing because Devin Booker goes out there and plays 44 minutes and you run, you know, Drew Holiday out there for 36. You're just you're at a disadvantage. So that's a big boost for them is that Budenholzer basically got forced into playoff minutes. Oh yeah, absolutely, it absolutely is. I mean, thinking about what's going on there with this with the Bucks, I think the big thing you take away if you're a Buck fan from that conference finals matchup is just the fact that hey, we had a great series here from the complimentary guys. Like Chris Middleton stepped up big, Pat Conte was knocking down big shots, Drew Holiday had some big moments. So I think it was big for the guys to say, hey, we can find ways to score without Giannis on the floor. Yeah, no, that that's a hundred percent true, Mike. And and I think for specifically Middleton and Holiday. They were both tremendous, right, in the closeout game against Atlanta. And, look, health and all that, we know. But that's still on the road, right? You know that Giannis apparently could have maybe been back for the game seven. All right, maybe we'll close this thing out in Milwaukee. But Drew Holiday came out, set the tempo very early in that game. And then out of half, Chris Middleton came out on fire. And, for the most part, closed the door. And I know that there were different moments in the fourth quarter where that thing got close, but they always provided themselves that separation. And, and Middleton has had some excellent games. He still doesn't have the consistency that you want from a main star, but having Drew Holiday there, who has been even more of an upgrade than I thought over Bledsoe. And I'll, and I'll be honest, I, didn't, I knew Holiday was better than Bledsoe, but I didn't know how big of an upgrade he would be over Bledsoe just because I didn't know if they would be able to put him in a position where his offensive game would flourish the way that it has in Milwaukee, but it absolutely has. I mean, he's a legitimate, not only third scorer, but he's a legitimate creator for others on that team. And it's worked out well, and clearing those hurdles on the way to the finals is, of course, very big. Yeah, absolutely is. And I'm thinking back to the Bucs, like the biggest moment for them that's gone underreported here is like, the Bruce Brown thing in game three of the semifinals there, because if somebody makes the shot there and the Kyrie injury happens, they're they're only da- they're still down three, one having that be two, two is a huge swing because the Durant game is not the killer that it would have been otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, that is like those breaks, right? Those come throughout the postseason. It's the same thing with Phoenix, right? Realistically, if Paul George makes one of two free throws, we go to overtime if he makes both, the game is over. 
And then if they could have just grabbed the rebound off of McCall Bridges' Mitch three, that's 1-1 going back to Los Angeles. And we would have been going into a game six where the Clippers were looking for a closeout. I mean, this <laughs> look, the, the way that we could have had, health or not, Paul George versus like Durant, right, with no other tertiary superstars, could have all played out with a couple of bounces here and there. But what you have to do if you're in Milwaukee or Phoenix, when you escape by the skin of your teeth, you have to appreciate that. And then try and pounce on your opponent the next game, right? Because they're always a little bit demoralized when they know that they should have sealed the deal and they let that opportunity slip. Yeah, for sure. And obviously, we're heading into this finals here. Game one's on Tuesday night. And the big thing that's hanging over the series now is the availability of Giannis Antetokounmpo, who obviously has the ACL injury and he Achilles injury. I'm not sure which one it is, but he's questionable. They said he could have played game seven. I don't know if we, it's something we never had to find out, but his availability hanging over the series, I think is a big X factor if you're trying to figure out how to bet it and for how you can project the series to go. Oh, 100%. It is the most important thing, I would argue, Mike. And I'll tell you this, uh, the show that I do on Sports Grid in the morning, the early line, really kind of helped me for this season in a way that I didn't realize it would. But because I'm breaking, the show airs from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. And I'm not even doing this as a, as a plug, but you tune in if you people would like. But the reason I bring that up is we are looking at lines as early as possible, right? Without usually full information as to who is going to be in and who is going to be out. So one of the skills that I've been able to really kind of pick up on is what a line says the book thinks will happen. Okay, that line suggests that Giannis will play. That line suggests that they're 50-50. That line suggests that Giannis is out. And I'll tell you what, Mike, that game one line that's available right now, that five and a half Phoenix Suns spread, to me is a full Giannis out line, and I disagree with it. Why would Giannis be 100% unavailable if there was an idea that he would be playing in a game seven that was supposed to be on Monday? Why would he then not play on a Tuesday? So if you're an early better, grabbing Milwaukee plus five and a half, I think that number can only go south. Because if they rule him out, I don't think Milwaukee's lying seven, eight, eight and a half points. I don't think that's the direction this line goes. So early projection, I tend to think Giannis plays based on reports. But I'll tell you this, Mike, I don't believe the books really are expecting Giannis for some reason in game one. Yeah, for sure. That's something that's something I've been tracking too, and the series price reflects it too. I think the, that was last I saw it, like Phoenix was minus 140 and Milwaukee's plus 175. So the Suns are pretty heavy favorites. I think that Giannis is at least going to diminish when he does play in the series. But I think you'll see, right, in the odds to win the first game money line relative to the series price, you, you see there is an expectation that Giannis will come back in some capacity of this series. And that was something that, in, in the moment of that injury, the hyperextension of the knee, we didn't think was going to be the case. I mean, it, it looked like he was done, right? You, you know, different Twitter doctors you might follow thought that he was done. So the fact that they're going to be able to get Milwaukee, get Giannis back at any point, really, is a massive boost for them. Yeah, it's true. And also, we have, it's one of the things that makes it a risky series to bet, in my opinion, also, because you don't know what kind of shape he's going to be you came back in, because all the reports for the Nets in Game 5, like, oh, James Harden's going to be back. That's great. He's basically playing on one leg. so And he was useless right. in the series. So that's a tough tough uh, pill to swallow and try and make that bet. 
It, it's a good point. It's a good point, obviously. I'll say this, though, Mike, you think about certain bets where you could possibly have some value. Giannis is plus 350 to win finals MVP, right? If you compare that to the Bucks plus 140, you know, price to win the title, there's a significant gap there that when these lines were out, when Giannis was fully healthy, that gap didn't exist. If the Bucks were, let's just say the Bucks were plus 140, Giannis would be plus 150 to win finals MVP. Basically, they would be offered at the same exact price because, you know, the book's saying, listen, if you're going to win the title, it's going to be because of Giannis. Because of the injury, they can't put that in the same way. But like, I don't think in a 70% Giannis that plays second or third fiddle to Middleton or Holiday, I don't think that team wins the finals. So I actually think the Giannis plus 350 finals MVP bet does have a little bit of juice to it. Yeah, any other bets that you were interested in making in this series? I'm looking to start this series off with a position on the over. The one thing about you know a series is if you have the ability to jump in early, perhaps you can ride the wave and carry things out for a little bit here. You look at the game one total, it's 217. These teams met multiple times this year, both games getting nearly 250 points in them. The, the first one was 125 to 124. The second, a little bit higher than that benefited from overtime, but still got 230 regulation points. You saw the Bucs start to pick the offense up a little bit towards the back end of that series against the Hawks. I think they can continue to move quick and shoot threes. You saw Phoenix put up 130 in their closeout game. Again, that's a team that can run. So for me, I think that 217 reflects what they have done at certain points of this postseason Certainly, but I think what I've seen from them recently and when I saw them match up in the regular season, I think I might be getting some legitimate value on that 217 that I can ride for the first couple of games for this series. So I'll probably start out on the over and work from there. Yeah, it's a good call. And obviously, it's a fun series. So if you had to make a pick right now, like who wins in yeah. how many games? Yeah, I'm going to make a pick right now, Mike, on, on a healthy Giannis. And I have to understand, like, not a 100% Giannis, but a near 100% Giannis, and I'll make a prediction of Bucks in six. I just think that Giannis is such a difference maker in that way where he can go out there and they can have answers to Aiden that maybe teams that they've not played at certain points of the postseason have had. They have perimeter wing defenders like Drew Holiday for Chris Paul and P.J. Tucker for Devin Booker to match up nicely. And Giannis is going to be difficult for them again if he can play. He put up 47 points in Phoenix this season. The second time they played, he scored 33. As long as they actually can get, you know, 25 give or take from Middleton there, I think Giannis can carry a lot of that workload. Obviously, health provided, Mike, but I feel like I have to kind of work off the idea of a healthy Giannis, considering they said he was going to get a green light for game seven. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think it's going to be interesting. I also think you're going to have some fun in the offseason. I feel like there could be some interesting bets going on there in terms of like markets or like trade options for Damian Lillard. I feel like that's also going to be one that's going to be a very fun betting market to track because I feel like there's going to be a lot of teams there in their port and actually take offers. I hope that's a thing that we are, are able to wager on. I love stuff like that. Uh, I know that, you know, when we were doing it with the NFL, I remember for a lot of quarterbacks, they would have, you know, what, Cam Newton or Tom Brady right back when that was the deal. So if they post Damian Lillard next team, Ben Simmons 
next team, Kawhi Leonard, Chris Paul. There's actually a lot of big names that could quietly become relevant pieces of this conversation, which would uh, which would be fun. But also the NBA draft too. You know that that always comes right before free agency, and that'll help shape a lot of things. And there could be some big trades being made there. But you know the Warriors having two picks within the lottery, perhaps try to take some swings and see what they can execute. We've heard the Pistons might be willing to move on the number one overall pick, which always opens the door to chaos. So the NBA offseason, as always, will be a blast. I will say this. I also wrote this about this on the blog version this week for the podcast here. If Danny Lowe is available, I think the Knicks, you need to do whatever you can to go get it because you don't get those guys moving very often. You can get one big star here. You can bring others down the line. So I think that's something they have to do if it's available to them. If possible, I'll just say this for Knicks fans. The Knicks will try, but the Knicks do not have the best possible offers. So if the Knicks strike out, it won't be because they didn't try. They they will give that a go, but it, it is not going to be a situation. Remember for years, Mike, how every single time a star player became available, we knew Boston had the best trade package because yep. they owned those Brooklyn picks. That's not what we're dealing with with the Knicks, right? The Pelicans, the Thunder, there's a lot of teams out there that will have comparable, if not better, things to offer. The Knicks will be aggressive. And Chris Paul's a name that they're going to be in talks about. And you made an important point about what bringing a Damian Lillard or even a Chris Paul can do. From a winning perspective, obviously that is important. But the perception around this Knicks organization took a tremendous turn this year. Winning basketball, an environment that you want to be a part of, that matters. In a league where you want to try and bring stars to your situation, showing that off is super important. And I'll add this little anecdote for you, Mike. A little bit of just kind of projection. Don't trade R.J. Barrett. Not because he's better than Damian Lillard. You Knicks fans that think that you shouldn't trade R.J. Barrett because he's better than then Damian are too valuable, you're crazy. Don't trade RJ. He is the key to Zion coming in like five years. It's five years. Play the long game. Keep RJ. He'll be the ultimate recruiter. Yeah, that's a good point also. I think the Knicks, as far as me going, like this year was fun, but like Atlanta exposed a lot of things in the playoffs. Like I think obviously they know they have to make some upgrades because they can't roll the same team back to have the same kind of success they did in a regular season because I think this year was sort of play conducive to their circumstances. Oh, I'll tell you this right now. If the Knicks run it back, I would probably project them to miss the playoffs. The East is going to be better. You think about, again, the Knicks finished fourth, right? Does anybody think the Knicks were the fourth best team of the Eastern Conference, considering they were handled by Atlanta? No. Boston will be better. Miami will be better. Indiana brings in Rick Carlisle. Washington, Toronto, Chicago, year two of their all-stars. The East has depth to it. I know Usually the conversation is, ah, it's the Eastern Conference. The East has depth to it. The Knicks will need to make market improvements if they want to be back in the postseason next year. It's very important, in my opinion, to get in the postseason again because you want to – I think the next freezing class supposed to be better. You want to sell these guys say, hey, we're making strides here. You don't want to have this be the one year and then all of a sudden you're winning 32 games, you're out of it, and then you have to tell the Stars to come here and try and be the Saviors again. You don't want that. No, 100%. But I will say, Mike, they, they have made they've made a lot of steps in the right direction with this season alone, right? I mean, even I mean, because let's be honest here. Julius Randle is a legitimate guy. Like, Julius is not just 
a piece. I mean, he was an all NBA talent. I mean, I, I think what, and, and that's another thing, right? If you were starting like, Hey, I think this coach could put me in a good position and bibs because of how he allowed Julius to flourish. They need more. You're better off with Julius as a two than a one, but you're, you're again, they, they made so many strides this year. I can't give them enough credit. I can't give them enough credit for what they did. Absolutely. We fun to see what happens this offseason. Kevin, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people, oh, follow, absolutely. How can people follow social media keep up with your coverage on sports, including the early line? Absolutely, yeah. Follow me over on Twitter at the Kevin Walsh. Going to always tweet out when we go live. Not just the early line on sports, but 7 to 9 a.m. Eastern, but also in play sports tonight, which is on Sports Grid Radio and Sirius XM Channel 204 from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m., both of those shows. Monday through Friday, so make sure you hook up with us over there. Yeah, I gotta say, betting the baseball has definitely been challenging because you never know what's going on in any of these games. <laughs> it's a blast, though, man. It's it's a blast. It, you know, and that's the one thing about the night show in play sports tonight is we're doing it live, right? So you always have the ability to react to the chaos and, and get in the mix that way. Yeah, I remember specifically the night the Braves scored twenty runs. You put on Twitter Braves total over four and a half. You had that one in about five minutes. <laughs> I, but I said, Mike, then I don't want to do some of my follow-up tweet. If I bet a team over four and a half runs and they score 20, I, I need I need a bonus, right? <laughs> like a double payout, ownership within the team. I don't know. I'm spitballing, but they got to give me some type of juice here. Listen, it doesn't work that well every night, but that's the beautiful thing about a team total to the over. Oh, what's that third inning? Cash pool. I don't have to worry about a Phillies bullpen imploding. I'm not betting on the Phillies to win the game. I'm just betting on them to score X amount of runs. It's a, it's a lot calmer to go about it sometimes that way. Absolutely, Kevin. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. You got it, Mike. Anytime, man. The Bad Batch is born. Ahsoka Tano makes some new friends. The Siege of Mandalore leads to an epic showdown and more as the Sky Guys are here to recap the final season of The Clone Wars. All right, we are back here on the podcast. Hope you had a good 4th of July weekend, and we are celebrating in style here. We finished The Clone Wars Season 7, the final season, which debuted on Disney Plus last year, 2020. With me, as always, first up, the hunter of the Bad Squad here, uh, Pete Constantine. Pete, how are you? I think you're giving me too much credit. I, uh, I don't know if I deserve the hunter title here, but uh, I'm good. Full from a nice barbecue on July 4th. Again, like you said, I hope everyone enjoyed it. Um, and we're talking season seven. I, I mean, there's there's a lot to get to, and there's also not a lot to get to, in my opinion. But but we'll talk. Thanks for having me on. No problem. I'd say you're hunter. I'm tech. I feel like, Nick, you're the wrecker of the group. Does that sound right? Sure. <laughs> He's fun. Yeah, but, he- how are, but good to be on, as always. Uh and when, when you told us back in, I don't know what it was, around Christmas time, that we were going to go through the whole show, this is what I was most excited for, to this exact episode. So I'm pumped. And I got to say, guys, congratulations. We did it. We have gotten through 133 episodes and one very bad movie of Clone Wars. So we made it. We went through the entire thing, Nick. Did you think it was actually going to happen? Oh, yeah. Once we said we were going to do it, I knew we were going to do it. But, you know, 133 episodes, as good as the show was, it was also as bad. Maybe <laughs> 60 of those episodes were terrible. 
but the 73 of them are great. Yeah, I would agree with that. Let's get into season seven a little bit and some general thoughts on it, because obviously this came out last year on Disney Plus, started before the pandemic, then was finishing up as the pandemic was really getting going here. Weekly episode drops. We get the three big arcs here. And Pete, what do you think of the choices that were made here for the arcs that we got picked? I don't think they're terrible. Um, I think the consensus will be that the first arc and the third arc were really good. And the second arc was like, whatever. Don't have many problems with the second arc as much as I thought I might. Uh, but I don't, I, I'm, I'm totally okay with this three arc season. I think they beautifully ended it as well. And I, we were talking off, off, uh, off air here when I first, you know, finished the, uh, the season and we're talking about ideas that could could have come of it. And we'll probably get to that a little bit. But yeah, no, season seven, the arcs that were in there, I have no problem with them. I think they did it well. Yeah, Nick, what about you? What do you think about the arcs that were chosen here? Because, I mean, Bad Bad makes sense. They're playing the spinoff. So, of course, they give you that one. We have an Ahsoka arc in the middle. Then we had the epic finale arc. What do you think about what we got here? Yeah, I don't, I don't complain with it. I mean, we went over some of the ones last time. What they could have had in, and sure, there could have been one or two that would have made this season a little bit better, but the arcs they picked were completely fine. They, As you mentioned, they introduced us to the Bad Batch. Then they spent four episodes with Ahsoka seeing what she's up to kind of thing, and it, it did lead pretty nicely into the finale, like that last episode of her, you know, I guess you want to call it the, the sister arc. That, you know, the last episode on that one did tie in nicely to the to the finale arc, so I'm okay with it. Yeah, I think I understand the logic here, and we'll get to it more when we get to that second arc, but I think it would have been nice to have a fourth one, sure. Like, you want to give us maybe Obi-Wan and Anakin having one last adventure, maybe have that Utapau one, maybe maybe have Yoda and the Bad Batch and the Kashyyyk one a little bit, sure, but I think we got some good stuff here. I think, I don't think they wanted to push their luck here. We're going 16 for the final season, so I think 12 ended up being fine. Agreed. Yeah. Let's start with the Bad Batch arc, and... Pete, we have now been watching, you and I did that backwards here. We started watching the Bad Batches show first. What do you think of their origin here, seeing their debuts? Yeah, I think it was fantastic. Um, I think Crosshair has got to be the, the the biggest badass of the bunch. I have to say, and I'm sorry if you have to bleep that out, but it it really hurts now to see that he's the one that is not with them currently through the Bad Batch series. As of now, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We have another what is it, 12, 13 episodes of The Bad Batch? I think they're 20 episode seasons they had announced prior. Um, he he just, uh, what a phenomenal character. And you can kind of tell, too, that he would be the one to go, you know, full-on inhibitor chip was working kind of a thing. But I do like the whole arc of finding Echo. I think that's huge. And that was a question I had watching The Bad Batch that I didn't understand because we hadn't watched season seven. So I think the origins were great. I obviously think Bad Batch, the show, is a lot better animated and everything because we're a little later on in the years. But I, I really love the arc. Yeah, Nick, one thing I was confused about at the time is obviously I was there with Pete. I'm like, wait, how does Echo fit in here? I know he's not like super enhanced like the rest of them, but how why, in the real time I'm surprised to see like this is a character that was just sort of randomly in season three in the Citadel one where we were dunking on Tarkin. We forgot about that arc and all of a sudden he's here and he's now rescued and he's the key to stopping this big separatist plot on Axis. What do you think about that? I like it. And I, just, I like that they use him just in general, just a clone that we're familiar with. It makes the show that much more relatable because, you know, we've mentioned countless times on this segment that 
the whole point of this show is to get us familiar with the clones. And if you just throw us a group of clones like Bad Batch without any, you know, personal ties to them, we're going to not really care that much. So having Echo is crucial. Someone like Echo could have been Rex, but the, you know, they're saving Rex for other things. Could have been anyone, but having someone like that is crucial. And I'm happy it was Echo. Yeah, I liked having this arc specifically because besides the point of the Bad Batch having like a badass introduction where they basically save the day, they run through legions of droids on the issues here. I thought it was nice to give Rex a spotlight here because especially he's a character who you have, well, we've seen him pop up in Bad Batch and I'm sure they have plans for him at the time, but it's nice to see him sort of get that spotlight as opposed to like, we've gotten plenty of Anakin stories over the years, got plenty of Obi-Wan over the years. Rex doesn't get a ton of spotlights. It's nice to have him sort of be one of the co-leads of this arc along with the Bad Batch beat. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, Nick has brought this point up a bunch of times in this podcast. We finally see the humanism in the clones. We don't really get that in the movies, right? And, and to Nick's point, this has been a show that definitely gives us a lot more information about the clones than we ever had. So I like that they're giving Rex more and more responsibility in a way. Um in the fact that he's a main character. I do consider him a main character in this show. Uh, in the beginning, not as many appearances as you want to say, but he's been growing and growing and growing um, throughout. And like you said, an appearance in the Bad Batch. So we know Rex is going to be here for a long time in all of these different sagas that are going to come out. Again, speculation about the live action series that are coming out. Will he show up there? But we know he's shown up in Bad Batch. And I actually like that like you said, we've broken up these seasons to have different story arcs about different characters. Droid arcs aside, it's very interesting to see the character development of all these little, um, I don't want to say not important characters because they are, but when you watch the movies, they're not considered important characters. Yeah, as far as Rex appearing in the future, Nick, I mean, if we're going to bring him live action, I mean, Tamar Morrison's still around. He's still doing Boa Fett. I'm sure they can tell him, hey, just throw on some clone armor and be Rex for a couple of scenes. We, I, I can't spoil anything, but we haven't seen The Last of Rex. I would not be surprised. And I don't mean live action. I just mean in general, we haven't seen The Last of Him, and his character goes a long way from here. Yeah, I also think in terms of, I think he's a perfect live action candidate, just because, like, again, the actor's yeah, still in, right. Yeah. The yeah. Actor's still in, employed. He's still being used by Disney, so they could say, hey, like, here's another contract, be Rex for some, some episodes of Ahsoka's show or something like that. Right. Definitely. I, again, I don't want to spoil anything. So in that, the next couple of segments, when we get into the other show, we'll talk. Yeah, we'll get to the other show. I mean, well, speaking of the Bad Badge right now, since we we're talking about them, let's figure, let's just catch up on what's going on with them right now in their show. And we last talked when Rex showed up and removed the inhibitor chips. Season like, episodes eight and nine have aired as a recording on July 1st. The next episode is dropping tomorrow. I think like we're at a nice like stopping point for the mid-season here. And I know Nick was excited. Episode eight, we get Cad Bane back for the first time since season four of Clone Wars. And as you have said, he's a guy who was nowhere in the last chat. He doesn't pop up in anything else. Nice to get him back in the mix, Nick. Yeah, and it makes me wonder. Now, obviously, I was so excited to see it. I thought they brought it. He was like really cool entrance. It was like the way he came in was awesome. Like, you know, it was like the shock. And it opens the door for me, or at least the possibility that we might see other characters too in this show. Why can't we see Bo Katan? Why can't we see Ventress? We could. They're all alive. We've never seen them die. Like these characters could be in the show. I mean, I don't want to go so far, but 
possible we even get Darth Vader in the Bad Batch. I don't think so. I know James Earl Jones is struggling. He's not the same, but even, you know, we'll get to it a little bit later, but he's in the Glow Wars and he didn't have to talk to make him to make his presence felt. Yeah, and P, I liked what we did here where we tie up some of the Omega stuff where we find out the bounty hunter solution here. We find out that two separate sets of Kaminoans to put bounties out on, on Omega where it turns out that Fennec Shan is hired by, I think, the one who was close to Omega to protect her from the Kaminoans where Cad Bane was hired by the rest of them to say, hey, bring her back. She's our property. And it turns out that she is Basically, as we learned, I'm going to throw the spoiler warning up here for Bad Batch because if you have not seen through episode nine, you, this is a big spoiler. Yeah, we find out that thankfully she is not the clone of a Jedi. She basically is the female equivalent of a direct clone from Jango Fett. So she is Boba Fett's sister. And we have not, it's a big piece of information we learned. Yeah, I mean, you have been warned. Very big piece of information. It makes me feel like we will see Boba Fett in the future. Um, I don't know how soon. I want to predict that maybe he will get into the middle of the whole Cad Bane and Fennec thing. I just feel like why else would a bounty hunter be involved if they weren't also with other bounty hunters? That's just my take on it. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Uh, However, huge information that really confused me at first because we see Fennec, we see Cad Bane. We obviously know Cad Bane is a type of guy who is no nonsense. I'm doing it for the, you know, the purse that's going to bring me. I want my credits. I don't care who I'm bringing this person to. I don't care what they do with this person. I just want my money and go. Fennec, as we saw in the Mandalorian is a little bit of, yeah, she's a bounty hunter, but she also kind of has that heart and loyalty to her. So it was a little confusing to see both of them going at her. But then once that Kaminoan came up and was like, hey, you know, it's okay if she's with, you know, the clone, you know, the squad 99, as long as she's safe, you don't have to worry about it. And Fennec's like, okay, if you ever need me, you know where to find me. Yeah, it makes a good point. And I, Nick, I think you brought up something interesting before and off air a little bit in terms of like, this is sort of a space where, as you said, many times we don't have a lot of established continuity in the Star Wars universe where that period from like, the end of the em- the end of the Clone Wars, beginning of the Empire, to about Rebels is what f- about five years before Star Wars. Yeah, uh, roughly. Four. Yeah, it's like that whole period is on un- like basically unwritten canvas for them to use. And this is a spot where you said not only do we get some characters, that maybe some stories we didn't see in Clone Wars and get repurposed here and brought up. Maybe some of those arcs, like the ones that you could fly close enough. I most thinking of the Cad Bane Boba Fett thing. I think it could be something that pops up here. Definitely agree. And I want to take this opportunity to mention something is I never really realized this and until the last like year or two. And I think it wasn't really relevant until about a year or two ago. It's that Boba Fett is literally the coolest character in all of media. Yeah. This guy, all he was, was a cool costume in 1980. And it turned into an entire race of people, an entire planet. Two TV shows completely centered around it. Spinoffs, a spinoff show based on it, Mandalorian. A spinoff show of the Mandalorian, another spinoff, the Book of Boba Fett, just because he had cool armor in 1980. Now you have a, his sister coming up as the main plot point in a third show. It's unbelievable. Just because his armor was cool in 1980, he's made basically four TV shows. 
Yeah. You know, you can say the old, that there's obviously a lot going on in the Clone Wars, but one of the main themes of the Clone Wars was Mandalore. Yeah. The same thing happens in Rebels. We have the Mandalorian, the Book of Boba Fett, now the Bad Batch. The whole the whole entire Grand Army of the Republic was based upon Boba Fett's dad. None of that would have happened if he wasn't cool armor. That is pretty crazy to think about. And as far as Bad Batch goes, uh, Pete, to mention earlier, they have a 16-episode season. We're about halfway through. I feel like we are at a point where, like, this is sort of the midpoint of the story. I feel like we're going back a couple episodes of them just doing jobs for Sid and running into people. Droid arcs. I think we're going back to that area again where I think the next like three, four episodes going to be them doing jobs for Sid and running into people. I don't think we're going to have any major, but I do want yeah, It's time for a droid arc. Yep. Speaking of of like random characters popping up, before we move, go back into Clone Wars, let's do a quick little draft. We just got to pick two characters who we think will appear in Bad Batch soon. Like it could be this season, it could be going forward. We're gonna take Boba off the table. I think we're all in agreement he's gonna show up. So let's. Can, can I stop you for a second and ask: Is this two people that I want to be in the show, or two people that I actually think will be in? Two people we actually think will be in it. Okay. All right. Okay. So, Pete, as Hunter here of the Bad Batch, you can go first. Who's your first person you think will show up? The first person I think that will show up is Ahsoka Tano. And the reason why I say that, I'm not saying chronologically she's the first person to come up, but I think that's who Rex is talking to when, when he's calling back to whoever he's talking to in that one scene when he leaves the Bad Batch. Um, we see, especially in this season, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, season seven of The Clone Wars, excuse me, Ahsoka Tano and Rex are pretty close. Um, and I'm sure Nick had to attest to that. Maybe that's also something that has to do with the Rebels in the future. However, I think Ahsoka Tano is going to be one of those characters that does come through. I, I don't, I was going to say Boba Fett for my second person. I really don't know who else they can kind of get. I would say probably, because I don't know if Mandalore is going to be something involved in this season, maybe next season, maybe Bo-Katan, um, maybe something like that, maybe Maul could could I throw that out there? Yeah. I'm assuming Maul's still yeah Maul's still alive in this yeah. in this uh, part of the time. So so maybe Maul, maybe Ventress. I mean, there's there's a ton. And 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 Nick had mentioned Ventress and Bo-Katan. So thank you for those suggestions. But I, hell, Ahsoka Tano and Maul. That's who I'm going with. All right, Nick. Who are your two? Um, my first is the investigate. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I, no, I I actually really. Hate to say it, this, but I completely agree. I have nothing to add. Just what Pete said. Ahsoka. Ahsoka and any one of those other characters. I really don't see any other way they can go. So you know, actually, I have one other one that they might throw in there, and that's uh, Bail Organa. He'll. I think he could find a way to sneak in just because of the time period. Yeah, Bail Organa is one that you could. I think for that reason, I think you're gonna get. C-3PO or R2-D2 showing up. I think one of those two will be there. I'm convinced of that because... My money would be on 3PO if any of them, or both. They'd probably be together. Because if Bale is there, he's going to have them at that point. So, like, they could just be on the ship and just waking up and be like, hey, we're here. Yeah, there would be a nice little fan service moment. Yeah, I think it would be, too. And I will throw a deeper cut out there for the rogue, for the for the solo fans. Like, what about the what about uh, Beckett? Like, the, the bounty hunter who killed Aura Singh. That's a very good um, possibility, good guess there, because Solo takes place nine years after Revenge of the Sith. Would you? How far after Revenge of the Sith do you think we are in Bad Batch? A few months? 
maybe like months. Yeah. So you're looking at about a nine year difference from from where we are right now. I would argue that Bad Batch is is I mean right weeks, weeks right? It's maybe four or five weeks maybe. Yeah, the first episode is is them getting yeah. It's sick. probably like it's, yeah, it's probably like a week. It's I would say it's like a month after in total. Yeah, I would say a month back. So you're looking at a nine year gap between this show and then, and Tobias is pretty established in that movie. So I definitely agree with you. That's one we haven't seen as far as I'm aware of other places. So like he could pop up and maybe you show or him killing or sing on the screen. And then we get that, that answer resolved in canon. My thought, I could be wrong. My thought, and I could be out there. could be actual like canon is that he killed her pretty close to that movie. Yeah. I would be, we don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe that is confirmed. I don't know. They're flowing around that bounty hunter realm right now, the Bad Batch a lot. So I'd be surprised a lot of those characters start showing up. I think that's where you're looking more for your cameos. Actually, yeah, I just looked. It is not confirmed when she died. So, yeah, you could definitely see her and you could definitely see him and his wife, too. She yeah. was in the in Solo, too, and she had died on the train. Like, yeah, T- get, be together. get Tanya Newton in here for some, some voiceover work. And that was John Favreau, you know, the guy in the uh, I don't know what you call him suit. Yeah, in the, and the, the pilot guy yeah. from Solo. Yeah, I, don't, I think we're a little early for like the Landos and the and the Hans of the world, but like I think you can get like Tobias Beckett. That's my that's my out there pick. I like it. All right, let's move on here to the Ahsoka arc, which I think was when we outlined last week, last time, in the Ahsoka's walkabout arc. And look, I get the motivation. You have not seen Ahsoka on the show since she leaves the Jedi Order in season five, apart from one vision that Yoda has, which isn't really her. You need to check in with her because it's weird story wise to have her just not be there. All of a sudden she shows up in the last arc, say, I have a lead on Darth Maul. Here we go. And I think the, you had to check in on her, but the way they did this, like Pete, Nixon, Warlock, he does not. What do you think went wrong with this arc? You, you know, I don't know if I want to say something went wrong. I want to say that they were just trying to find an interesting story to lead up to that last arc. I'm not saying it was the best executed, but I'm not saying it was the worst. Like I'd rather watch that arc than a droid arc any day. And Ahsoka flying out of the sky on a broken speeder bike or whatever in motorbike, however you want to call it. And, and, winding up with Trace and Rafa, it, it kind of shows Osoka's maturity and also her, what's the word I'm looking for? Willingness to help even a stranger, right? That was the Jedi way. That was the, the, the morals that she learned as she grew up and she wanted to help, genuinely help. And you actually kind of see through this arc the the resentment sometimes of the Jedi from people on Coruscant that didn't exactly agree with the Jedi. And that was, I don't want to say refreshing, because, I mean, you know, you never want to see, like, the good guys have something bad said about them. But, you know, everyone has their opinion. Everything's relative. So to see all that transpire and then to introduce Bo-Katan back in and get them into that last arc, I actually don't mind the second arc at all. Again, I'd much rather watch that than a droid arc or a Zero the Hut arc any day. Yeah, certainly fair. And Nick, I know you are not a big fan of the Martez sisters. So in your opinion, like what happened there? Like, where did they go wrong? They're just boring. Yeah. And they're boring characters. I agree with the motivation behind the arc and the way it, the way this arc ends. 
like the the eighth episode of the season was was actually pretty good, but it was just boring. Like that first episode was just like, oh my god, this is painful. But to be fair, the last time we saw Ahsoka was March of two thousand thirteen. It's been seven years since anyone saw Ahsoka on screen, and, and I agree they needed to bring her back in some capacity, show what she's been up to, show what life is like in the. I guess you call it the lower levels of Coruscant. Show what it's like. And then another thing you notice is how not, not everyone has this bright opinion of the Jedi. You kind of see that, how people in the lower levels of Coruscant are like, well, the Jedi started this war. You know, All they do is fight, this and that. They don't view the Jedi as heroes. And that's interesting to see because as the viewer, we're led to believe they're heroes. Yeah, Pete, Trace and Rafa were approver of our ranking of the Jedi Council down near the bottom right LPT list. Oh, a thousand percent. Yeah. I'm getting a little worried about that today. We'll get to that a little bit later, but I'm getting a little bit worried about those rankings. Yeah. Well, let's speak. We'll get to those rankings in a minute. I think for me, I think the thing I to consider with this arc is like the stakes are so low. You have this big, bad batch, ginormous arc where you're going, you're rescuing Echo, you're stopping a separatist mission. Then we're spending four episodes with Ahsoka watching two bumbling sisters can't get out of their own way, botch a spice deal. Like, that seems like very, very low stakes for what we have gotten. I mean, it's not Mebar Gascon wandering around with droids for four episodes, but, like, it's not great. Well, let me, let me, this let me, takes place before the Bad Batch arc, if you didn't know. Oh. And that makes sense to me, is, as this takes place first, and that doesn't really make sense to me, to be honest with you. It makes sense to me at the beginning, but, like, once you get to the end, it seems like once you found out about balls, she went right to it. And, yep. You know? But... Uh, it, let's say it does, because that is what it says online. So I'm assuming that, you know, StarWars.com wouldn't lie, but it, well, it, it could I because guess, you could say, like, you know, maybe they went and did some planning before they went and got, got Anakin and Obi-Wan. Right. But I just don't think, I guess the reason they did it this way is this wouldn't work as an opening. No. If the opening episode was her meeting people. I feel like you're going to be like, people are going to be like, oh, I'm not watching the season. Yeah. Especially it's one at a time. You have to wait a month to get the bad match part then. Yeah, these episodes all came out weekly, except the last episode was only three days after episode 11 because it came out on May the 4th. Yeah. Yeah, and Pete, like, I want to throw this out there to you. The Martez is like, are probably the worst part of his arc because their character is not well designed. The original variation of his arc had not them in it, but a character who is not invented named Nick Sokami, who is a quasi-love interest for Ahsoka. Like, do you think if he is there, does that make this any better? I think it makes it worse. I, I don't I don't think the only love interest in my opinion that worked for Star Wars was Anakin and Padme. Yes, there was that tension between Obi Wan and Satine, and you kind of knew that was a thing. Love interests in Star Wars to me don't. Oh, and excuse me, the whole the whole Han and Leia thing. But love interests in Star Wars to me don't work on every single level. I don't think Ahsoka Tano having a love interest past what she did in Clone Wars. If you bring her back after seven years and you put her in this four-episode story arc with a love interest, I, I don't want to say it's as bad as Jar Jar having a love interest, but it's like we didn't come to watch Ahsoka Tano fall for someone. We wa- came to watch Ahsoka Tano like, mess stuff up, right? Yeah. She is, you know arguably, the you know next to Anakin, one of the more powerful Jedi just from watching this uh, or non-Jedi now. She's not really part of the Jedi, but watching the show, she's a very strong character. Yeah. So I think to kind of go a love interest route would almost be like kind of like a cop-out 
Yeah, I think Nick, I think what they were trying, that, that original blueprint trying to go for is maybe sort of go for like, oh, this is sort of like a Han Solo-ish kind of guy that she's running with. And like, maybe it's a little charm for that guy. I, mean, I think that's the idea, but I think I agree with Pete. I don't think it works. What was, well, now what was this character's name? Did you say Nick? Nick's Okama. So not Nick. Not Nick. Uh, I got excited that there was a Star Wars character named Nick. Uh, well, then, no. No, it wouldn't work. If his name was Nick, it would work. <laughs> okay, that makes sense to me. It would work. No, but I, you know, I, I agree with Pete. The love thing in Star Wars doesn't really work. It worked with Han and Leia, or Vatican Padme, and I mean, I'm not even going to talk about what they did with Ray and Kylo. Was that supposed to be love? I don't know. <laughs> and and Rose and and Finn. I don't know. She. Yeah. Well, well he was gonna he was gonna save the day, and then she was like, "Nope, we're not. You're not gonna save the day." But we'll yeah. get to that next time, I guess. Yeah. Next time. Let's get to this final arc here, which is the one we're all waiting for. When Nick is saying this again, this is the one you have to get through the show for. This is the final arc, the Siege of Mandalore. And I just say, I love the coming in. You can tell that stuff is really getting real because the only the narrative of one episode, the rest is just boom, like the title card, no like words of wisdom, no anything. Just you're in the story. Here we go. And one thing I love, Pete, they did a lot of tie-ins to things for episode three, like where they explained a lot of things that fit nicely. Like why all the Jedi were all so spread out, made them easily killable because Count Dooku and Geonosis and Grievous were attacking all the Outer Rim. So they had to get all these Jedi out in the battlefield to stop these charges. We found out why Anakin and, and Obi-Wan are not there with a chance that gets kidnapped. So stuff like that, like they tried to figure that out and give you lots of explanations for these things. Who's going for this one, me or Nick? Uh, Pete. Oh, go ahead, Pete. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so no, I agree. I think I don't know how you guys feel. This has turned into episode three point five for me, and the reason why I say that is because when I go to rewatch the movies before we do this, I will be watching episodes one, two, three, this four episode arc, then going on to Rogue One and and all that because I feel like it works so nicely. This arc was written so beautifully. I have to say it was the best arc of the entire series. I will have to go out and say that. And I'm sure you guys will agree with me. The, I, I have to say the best part of the arc is that it didn't take four episodes for Mr. Maul to be captured. Yes. That's what I was worried about. I was worried that part four would have been Maul was captured. And that's the end of the arc. But they get on it right away and they actually have maul try to manipulate ahsoka to say hey join me do do this we can defeat darth sidious together and all these different things and i think that's what made this arc even more powerful we did not get the stereotypical okay the final boss is maul you're gonna defeat him in the last episode yeah nick what'd you think about some of these tie-ins to episode three because i like i think they as Pete said, they weave in so beautifully, and it does feel like it's running side by side with the actual movie. Yeah, it was awesome. You have like meetings that are in episode three. I don't know if you pick up on like, I don't know if you could pick up on it. Like when they're doing those meetings around the table with the holograms. Yeah. Like Mace Windu and Yoda, they're literally saying the exact same lines as episode three. It's like it's literally happening there. Like they're having that meeting. Oh, God, I don't remember what it was. In the la- in one of the last episodes, and I forgot what they were talking about. But they, were t- that they it was the one where oh, it was one where they where- said if yeah they're talking about how the chancellor should be removed from office if he doesn't give his emergency powers. That was literally in the movie. The scene ends in, in the movie. Ahsoka walks in, 
you know, and there's actually many things on YouTube you can find if you type in like Revenge of the Sith Clone Wars edit, you'll find people who like edited these scenes to go and play like either at the same time on a split screen or like right after one another, like chronologically. So you could see all the tie ins and episode three happening in like a 20 minute video or something. It's really cool. Yeah. One of those I want to get to real quick. I thought it was pretty cool was like the seat like like there's a, a conversation with Obi-Wan and Ahsoka when she's on Mandalore and he's about to go look for Grievous and she, and he finds, she basically finds out about Dooku being killed by Anakin. And it's nice to him say, you know, like we're pissed. Like we could have had this, the answer that who Sidious is and we don't know because Anakin killed him. So I thought that was a nice to give that answer. Cause it seemed like the Jedi did not seem to react enough in the movie. The fact that Anakin basically cost them their biggest lead, the Sith Lord. Yeah. Um, I feel like they should have known anyway, but that's just me. Yeah, let's get to the actual siege of Mandalore itself. And Pete, the battle we get over the two the first episode of this arc was just incredibly done visually. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't I think everything in this season was done beautifully visually. I mean, I think the only uh way it could have been better is if we had bad batch animations for this whole last arc, right? Um, everything looked motion captured. Nothing looked uh, too cartoony. You know, Nick had spoke about that throughout the season, saying like, as we get, you know, older and older in the seasons, and we keep going farther and farther, it's going to get better and better. And I have to say, the lightsaber battles, the 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 um, just even the way that the uh, clone troopers and the Mandalorians and all of Maul's. I, I, I can't remember if Maul had like a name for his army, but just everything looked real. It just looked animated. Um, I think they did a beautiful job. And I have to say it's a complete battle. Like, I, I don't think anything was really missing from it. I, I wasn't, obviously you want more, but it wasn't like I was left wanting more. Yeah, Nick, what you about this battle, the, the whole siege of Mandalore? And I like that we had the, awesome. the, the Bo-Katan component with the, with her faction of the Mandalorians, we had the 501st. I love the great touch there of having like the troopers all paint their armor like a so like a Sokka's like uh, facial stylings. I liked all that stuff. I thought it was a pretty cool like representation of everything. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. And that that Maul Ahsoka lightsaber fight, you can I'm sure you're able to tell on your first time watching, but if you watch it again, you could tell it's 100 percent real motion captured. That is zero computer. You know, com- like, com- like animated. Just, I don't know. Obviously, it's animated. I don't know what I'm trying to say. You guys know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it was. It wasn't created by a computer, even though it was. It was. It was motion captured, and those are real people moving around. And that is Ray Park, the guy who played Ball in Episode One, and in Solo. But like, that's awesome. And the battle was so cool. Everything with Maul. Maul had a plan. He drew them in. He wanted Kenobi to come. I like how I'm calling him Kano Obi-Wan. He wanted Obi-Wan to come because he had a whole plan around it. He wanted and then he's saying the whole thing with Anakin, like getting Ahsoka, like, wait. What? Yeah. You know, like what are you talking about? And then she doesn't bring it up later, which we'll get to, but like it was I think it was perfectly done. This Pete had mentioned off the air to us that they should make this four episode arc into a movie. And it would be amazing. Yeah, It'd be literally perfect. I, I, even like the, even the cartoony parts of this were amazing. Like at the way beginning of the battle, Ahsoka like jumps down from like fifty feet and lands on the platform. The explosion goes behind her. Like even that was awesome. That like kind of reminds me of like Iron Man. Yeah, 
Yeah, that whole scene in the game where he throws his arms in the air, he's throwing all the missiles up in the background. Like, that kind of reminds you of that. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of Maul's uh, uh, speech to Ahsoka, I do have the audio pulled of that because I thought it was too important to us to paraphrase. So let's listen into what Maul actually had to say to Ahsoka at, before their final battle on Mandalore. So let's listen to this. I will help you. But you must answer one question. You have but to ask. What do you want with Anakin Skywalker? He is the key to everything. To bring balance to the Force? To destroy. He has long been groomed for his role as my master's new apprentice. You lie. Not in fact, I was so certain of his fate that I orchestrated this war to lure him here with Kenobi to kill him, thus depriving Sidious of his prized pupil. First of all, phenomenal job there by Sam Whitworth doing the voice acting of that speech. It was really great, and Pete, like he really nailed this on the head. This is very impressive. I mean, Mister Maul, as we've deemed his new name has he's very he's force sensitive obviously he's the dark side of the force he knows anakin skywalker is gonna be the one that's gonna be the major problem moving forward and no one sensed this other than him like that to me boggles my mind even when yoda asks ahsoka like hey anything else you gotta tell me about skywalker and so he's like nah it's all right i'll tell him when i see him in person like it boggles my mind that Maul is the only person, the only person that is like, yeah, Anakin's going to be a real problem. Yeah, and Nick, I think it's interesting, too, that, like, Maul comes up with this whole plan. It's like, I'm going to draw Kenobi in because Kenobi knows that I want revenge on him. And basically, his plan to get there is to basically tell Obi-Wan, hey, he's the problem. Let's get rid of him. That way Sidious can't use him against us. So what do you think about Maul's overall plan there? I think... If I was wearing a hat, I would tip my hat to Dave Filoni for turning a character who was dead into a, oh my God, why would they bring him back? What? Darth Maul is alive? To one of the most interesting characters in Star Wars. And great plan. And he's right. And he's awesome. And he's a badass. And everything Maul did in this entire arc was awesome. And that speech. Another thing I want to touch on real quick is how good was the music in this yeah. in this uh, arc, really, the whole yeah. season. But I'm in this arc, like it has that same feel. Remember in episode three when they tell Anakin to wait in the um, the Jedi Council, yeah, and he's in there, and Padme's at home, and Anakin's in the Council, and Mace Windu, and the rest of them are going to arrest the Chancellor, and there's just that really powerful music playing that like Anakin starts crying, and Padme starts crying. I had the same exact vibe during the mall speech to Ahsoka. It had that same feeling to it of like something huge is about to happen yeah. and something huge did happen. But that plan that you, why you went to me was great plan. And unfortunately for Maul, it didn't work out. And unfortunately for the galaxy, it didn't work out because if a lot of Jedi too, if, yeah, if Obi-Wan did go, maybe he would have got through to him. I don't know. Yeah, I think it is the repeat. Let's play a stock sermon out here. Let's say for a second here that Palpatine is not like a step ahead here to having uh, Grievous states the kidnapping to get Anakin like to come rescue him and kill Dooku. So 
let's say Obi-Wan and Anakin are the ones who go to uh, Mandalore like the original plan was when Ahsoka and Bo-Katan go there for help. Like, if they're the ones chasing down Maul, they come down here, what do you think actually has? Do you think Obi-Wan is going to listen to Maul, or do you think they just delay the inevitable here? So, I think, and I'm sure you guys agree, Maul's plan is to be Sidious's apprentice again, or even the master of the dark side. I don't think he liked what happened where Darth Sidious messes him up and kills Savage Opress, right? I think he wants his revenge on Obi-Wan, but he also wants to get that much closer to defeating his old master and also becoming the 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 big the head honcho, right? I think that's what a part of his plan was when he was talking to Ahsoka as well. And Ahsoka's like, I can see right through you. I know exactly what you're doing. You want to use me to get to him and you'll do the same thing that Sidious is doing. Maybe not the at the exact same plan, but you're going to try to do that. I think that's still there. I just think it stops Anakin be- from becoming Darth Vader. I think it stops um, Obi-Wan from going into hiding. Like, I think, I think the, the dark side still prevails if they go to Mandalore and they go toward Maul. Who knows? Maul may kill Obi-Wan. And Anakin kills Maul. It's like the the whole Qui Gon Jinn Obi Wan Kenobi thing just mixed around. It, it could go that way, but I just I think that's really the only thing that changes. I still think Order sixty six gets thrown into place. I still think that Maul wins in the end if they go if he doesn't get killed or actually killed. Um, so I don't know how much would change other than you lose the whole Darth Vader thing. Yeah, Nick, I think the the thing that changed here, I think if Maul's plan works and Maul kills Anakin, Maul just becomes, like, the bigger Sith threat because he cuts kind of cuts pa- uh, Palpatine off the knees. I feel like that's what his real motivation is. It says basically, screw Palpatine, not I'm doing this out of no wonders in my heart. I think if this happens and Anakin and Obi-Wan go to Mandalore, I think you end up with the same galaxy, but with some different people. I think, I think Anakin dies. I, from Order 66, I think Maul dies in a battle with Obi-Wan and Anakin. I think Obi-Wan escapes the same way he did and you end up just having the exact same Empire and the same original trilogy with no Darth Vader. Yeah. And then there is no one to kill the Emperor and Luke goes to fight him alone. Well, Luke wouldn't Luke exist? Yeah, he would, he would he exist. exist. Bad, yeah, Padme was already pregnant, so he would exist. Obi-Wan would train him. Yoda would train him. He'd go and fight the Emperor and he'd die. Yeah. I think that would be it. There'd be no Anakin. There'd be no Vader. There'd be no redemption. And that'd be the end of the story was Anakin failed against the Emperor. And then Luke did too. Yeah. Yeah. Let's I think keep... that's what happened. All right. So that's it. We'll never really know what happened if that actually almost playing comes to fruition. But let's go to the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, the meeting that we see episode three where the council is being about arresting Palpatine if he doesn't get up his powers. And we found again, Ahsoka walks in that meeting, tells them like basically tells them, Oh, I have Maul, blah, blah, blah. And, or she's close to getting Maul. And at the end, like she does chooses not to reveal what Maul told her about Anakin to the council. And I'm going to go to you first. Nick, why do you think that is? Why do you think she holds that information back? think the Jedi Council has made their last mistake. They lost the trust of Ahsoka. She's trying to protect Anakin. And rightfully so, 
she doesn't trust them after what we've seen. You know, they're a minus four on our LVP list. And they've given her, they've given us numerous reasons to not trust them. And this is their final mistake because they didn't, they didn't show any trust in her. She's not showing trust in them. She's protecting Anakin. And maybe if she said something, as we just talked about these possibilities and how you don't step on a butterfly or whatever they say, kill butterfly, the butterfly effect with this, if she had said something, we'd be looking at a completely different galaxy, but she didn't have their trust and she was protecting Anakin. And I don't blame her. Yeah. Pete, what do you, anything to add on this? I think again, Mace Windu ruins that moment for her. I mean, if during that meeting, Soka asks, like, well, what's going on? And Mace is like, well, citizen, you can't know because this is Jedi matters or some crap. So, of course, she's going to be like, yeah, I'll just tell him myself. Like, you're, you're just proving me why I left the Jedi Council. Like, I just brought you Maul on a platter without you, right? I brought you Maul with the help of Commander Rex and his unit where you didn't even want to give me Anakin and Obi-Wan. I gave you Maul. You came and tell me a little bit of information on what's going on. I'm helping you out. I'll talk to Anakin myself. No problem. I would have had the same reaction. Yeah, I think as this goes to Fia Mace Windu. I think if Mace Windu is not like basically an arrogant dick to her, she tells the information right there and says, hey, I'm worried about Anakin. Can you guys check on him? She kind of alludes to that, though. Yeah. She's like, hey, if you're going after the Chancellor, the Chancellor and Anakin are pretty close. So you better kind of keep an eye out on him or like make sure he doesn't know. Yeah. And then, and then Mace Windu gives her the attitude about like, oh, we can't tell you because you're not part of the Jedi Council anymore. Or the, excuse me, the, the Jedi uh, Order order anymore so like of course i'd be like screw you i'll tell him myself like i wouldn't tell you anything i wouldn't be doing you any favors yeah i think it makes a ton of sense and i think obviously that sets up where we get to the point i think they do a good job in the arc of showing her sensing through the force when anakin falls to the dark side and we get that basically ends episode two of the arc and episode three i thought it was great that it was the Order 66 scene, and we know it's coming. And the beginning, there's, like, almost no dialogue. The music's, like, dead quiet. And, Nick, I thought it was fantastic. because like, you know it's coming, but, like, they don't give you the hint of exactly when it's coming. So you, you're kind of sitting there in suspense for a few minutes wondering when the Order 66 bomb drops. Yeah, when I first watched this last year, I was surprised it came that early. I thought it was going to come in Episode 12, not Episode 11. But when... You know, as you mentioned, it's that same music. I don't know what you call that in, in, in movies or in TV shows. It's that suspenseful music in the background. It's not even music. It's just like a noise. It's just like a, it's like a long, like long held note in an opera or something. But it won't actually like end. Yeah. Yeah. And it just gets you. I don't want to say scared, but just like excited. I don't know the word, but you know what I'm trying to say. You're like, nervous. Ready. You're ready. Yeah. And you hear, then you start hearing the, um, the archive recordings from that scene when Anakin, I guess, officially turns, you hear that. And then you're like, Oh, this is, that's where we are. Cause you're following along on the other two episodes on where we are in the movie. You're like, okay, we're at that point in time now where, you know, and now you're like, okay, that happened. So pretty much if I remember correctly in the movie, as soon as he makes Anakin Vader, as soon as he sends him off on his mission, he executes order 66 which is pretty much right then and there. So as soon as you hear that, you're like, oh boy. I thought the way it was handled was perfect. Like you're seeing it from a clone's perspective. Like you can argue that's Ahsoka's perspective, but I think that's more of Rex's perspective on Order 66 than hers. And it's like, you can see how he like, 
drops the helmet and he's like, it's just, it's very sad to see, to be honest with you. I think with the archive footage and knowing these characters as well as we do, I think it's more sad to watch order 66 in the clone wars than it is to watch it in episode three. Yeah. You have no attachment to those uh, clones episode three. Yeah. There's a bunch most, of guys. And, and most of the Jedi that they killed in, in episode three, you don't know about either. The only one you do pretty much is Kiati Mundi. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah, and Pete, I think it's also fascinating to see how Ahsoka tries to deal with the situation because she's no like she's attached to a lot of these clones, so she's not trying to kill them. She's trying to basically incapacitate them, and then she has this brilliant idea of, you know what? Maul is here. Let's use him to be the decoy so I can figure out what the hell's going on and basically try and save as many as I can. So what do you think of that brilliant uh, tactical approach? Well, she's lucky that Maul didn't try to pull anything. That's number one. I mean, he did in the end. He did pull a pretty big... Like F you even. Yeah. I'm leaving. You guys are done because you didn't want to work with me. Okay, fine. I get it. I, I, I want to piggyback on what Nick and you said. We actually are emotionally invested in these relationships between the clones and the Jedi order and the generals that are their Jedi, right? Ahsoka Tano and Rex have probably the strongest bond when it comes to a Jedi and a clone trooper, I would say even more so than Anakin and Rex and Kenobi and Rex, right? To see the way that the Clone Wars did this episode, again, picking back on what Nick said, seeing the helmet drop and almost and seeing Rex pretty much shed a tear, like he's being forced to hurt someone he loves like a daughter or a sister or, or, or a friend it's really heartbreaking. It's like, wow, like they know they're doing something wrong, but they're going to do it anyway. Yeah. And then it turns into the Ahsoka is going to try to get Rex to, you know, she finds out what the, what all the things are going on with fives. Cause he mentions fives because he's still kind of there. He's still not, you know, he's talking about fives when Ahsoka's fighting back. And so she looks up what fives went through and what was going on. So she learns about the inhibitor chips so then she's like, we can probably get Rex back. And then he has, she has the inhibitor trip removed and we go on our merry way. Right. So I, I do think this is like Nick was saying, I have to agree with him. Order 66 is felt a lot harder by the viewer in the clone wars than it was in episode three, because I mean, let's be honest, if we didn't watch the clone wars and we watched episode three and two, will we know any of these guys' names? Nope. Maybe one, maybe, you know. To, we got Cody. Say, That's it. They say, yeah, they say Cody's name once, I think. Cody's once, maybe Rex's once, maybe. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I think they did a wonderful job at putting backstory so that you can appreciate the movie so much more. Yeah, Nick, I thought it was interesting, was interesting that Pete brought up also that we get that five storyline tie back in and that we – well, we started a lot of season six. I think probably one of the most important arcs of the back half of the show is that one. And nice to see them go do the video file of Rex's report that they had the Jedi seal because obviously Paladin probably ordered it. But nice to see them bring it back in. It makes you think for sure that, like, that's one if they had not finished it that would have thrown into the season to make sure they had that plot point available to them. Yeah, that was a, a cru- obviously a crucial thing to show that there was some awareness on that ship with how limited it was. And then we got to see... The mall rampage. You know, he got he got his hallway scene. Yeah, that was and that did not leave anything to be desired. That was awesome. He went down that hallway with no weapon. With the and, force. Yeah. 
He used the he used the hallway as his weapon. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, it was amazing fight scene because you see him go down, just mow down legions of clones, and literally, it's like you said, it, he doesn't have a lightsaber with him. He doesn't have the dark saber. He doesn't steal the guns and use the force to fire the guns. He just takes the hallway, uses a shield, and just pushes the soldiers the force and stuff like that. That's incredible. And another another example of excellent music. Yeah, that scene is another just awesome, awesome vibes with that with amazing music. And how cool is it when he? And the trooper's hand got, or the arm got cut off. Yeah. And I, I do, I'm interested. I know we spoke about this before, but I don't know if we have an answer. And I'm not, I don't, honestly don't remember if we get an answer, but where is that saber? Huh? It's a good question. Where is the dark saber? I thought Bo Katan was going to have it, and you're going to see some resentment of Ahsoka because we, we haven't seen the last of this saber in animation, but I don't remember where it is right now. Right. So, like, I don't know if this is answered in Rebels. I'm, but I'm would, assuming it is. Yeah, I think, you, I think it is. I just don't remember. And would have some resentment toward Ahsoka because Ahsoka is the one that really defeated Maul. So she, technically, she's the true ruler of Mandalore, right? If we're talking about what was canon for the ruling of Mandalore. Yeah, but at the same time, though, like Maul doesn't use a dark saber in the fight, so it makes you think he doesn't actually have it at that point. Right, but I, I'm I'm talking about. The, the well, rules. no, it doesn't. He doesn't use it in the fights for episode, um, he the used, last episode of season seven, but he has used it before when he was wielding a single lightsaber, right? He used it against Palpatine. That's the last time we see it, right? Right. So I don't, yeah, I don't know where it goes from there. You're right. It's a good point. I don't know what, what happened. So I, I just looked it up and I remember. I'm not going to say anything, but I, it's somewhere. It does it's, get answered. It's, it's, it's still out there. Yeah. Okay. We'll see it again. Okay, so that's that's an interesting question you brought up here, and I, I want to go to the ending of this arc because obviously it's worth spending a lot of time on. I think the the scene at the end, and where we get the epilogue, obviously Ahsoka and Rex end up crashing the cruiser, like all the like they escape on like one ship that seems to be working, and then all of the other clones die. They bury the clones on the snow planet. They leave. Ahsoka drops her lightsaber to. Uh, basically, sell the illusion she died in the attack, and we get the epilogue of Darth Vader showing up, wordless, picking out the lightsaber, taking it with him. So, Pete, what do you think of that whole epilogue sequence? Uh, very powerful. I think it's not so much. I agree with you with her dropping the lightsaber as a figure. If she died in that battle, maybe just to give the illusion she wasn't there. But I think she's just done. Yeah. I think after all of that, I think she's like, I'm done. Like I gave a lot i've lost so many people that i have built relationships with i am completely done i'm going to disappear which i'm assuming she comes back in rebels like i said i don't know but she does come back in the mandalorian so with lightsabers so i, I don't know where the pieces get connected however it, it just shows how defeated she is just like a lot of the other Jedi. I mean, Yoda looked defeated in episode three as well. It was just like they kind of knew, like, it's over. We're done. I have to hide now because if I don't, I'm going to get killed. Yeah, and Nick, I also thought the scene where they buried the clones was also fantastic because it really does, like, signal an end to this show. And, like, nice to show that, like, they show, still show the respect to bury all of them, even though they tried to kill them, like, the span of 10, like, let's say about, like, a half hour of showtime. And mm -hmm. it goes to show you that, like, hey, like, 
these were still like these still Rex's brothers. These were still Ahsoka's like loyal soldiers, and she knows that it was not their doing for why they did this. So I thought it was a nice touch, especially we get it that was, lingering shot of Jesse's helmet in the front of that group. It was a great way, symbolically and literally, to put an end to the clones and the Clone Wars. But two things: one, both times I watched this, I thought this: Am I crazy? When they crashed the ship. It's not a snow planet, and then it becomes a snow planet. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I just don't. It didn't follow either time on that. Maybe Vader showed up in the winter. Look. Yeah, that's what I. That's and second to me. I don't know if you guys agree. To me, it's very clear Darth Vader does not think Ahsoka is dead. He knows she's alive. I thought it was interesting because, like, I think he just takes the saber with him because, like, he feels bad about Ahsoka dying. But like, yeah. I don't. Oh, I, I don't. I, I think of it more as Ahsoka dying in quotes. I think he knows Ahsoka Tano is still out there and alive, but Ahsoka the Jedi is long gone. Pete, did you get that read? I, I didn't think it. I didn't think it as Ahsoka was dead. I, I thought, like I said, she dropped her lightsabers in a. Okay, this is not the world we used to live in. It's not the universe we used to live in. Galaxy, whatever. Um, and I'm done. I have to go. Like I'm. I'm just. I'm depleted. I'm defeated. When he picks up that lightsaber, I think it's a more of a reassurance that she is still out there and that Vader still still knows what she probably had to go through and what was going on. Because the last time Anakin knows of Ahsoka is that he's sending her off to Mandalore to try to get Maul. Yeah, I, was I, think, yeah. I think it's Anakin holding that lightsaber, not Darth Vader. Yeah, yeah I think it's an interesting point because in the Anakin space of it, Padme is dead. Obi-Wan just tried to kill him and left him for dead on Mustafar, so he's long gone. All the Jedi he killed are dead. The only person he really has a, any attachment to, and we're not counting, like, the Jar Jars of the world or the droids, it's Soka. So I, I guess maybe he's clinging some sort of hope, like, maybe she's alive somewhere, and I'll find her down the line, and I'll convince her that this was the right thing to do. But, like, I, I read more as, like, sort of like, and this is another one that I screwed over by I'm not being able to take take care of things the right way. Yeah, I think he's sorry about it. Tells he screws her over, but I don't think he thinks she's dead. Okay, well, that's one we'll put a and, pin. I think that's yeah. one. I think we'll have to. I think Rebels will have to see if that comes up at all. And um, I'm doing for those of who are not watching on YouTube. I'm sealing my lips. Okay, but um, but but how long ago? I just want you guys' opinion. How long do you think after? The crash and the lightsaber drop. Do you think he shows up? Is that years? Is that weeks? Is that what do you think? I'd say months. I agree with you. I think it's summer and then the winter when he goes there. Yeah, so I don't know. Can can we possibly think of it as one day it's snowing, one day it's not? I mean, I, the way that the way that I looked at it was it was very recently after. I think. The way I interpret it is Darth Vader is going out with troops to make sure that everyone that was supposed to be killed off during Order 66 was. Um, and I, when I saw the planet, I don't know if it was considered a moon or a planet or what. I didn't get a vibe of, oh, this isn't, you know, like, let's say Hoth is a nice planet. But like, I, I didn't get a vibe of, oh, it's summertime and then now it's winter. I got a vibe of, OK, it's just the next couple of days it snowed. Like that's how I took it. I could be completely wrong. It could be months, years. I, I, I have know. one. I agree with you, but I have one reason that it can't be is that we just watched the whole show. They're clone troopers. He was not with clone troopers. He was with stormtroopers. 
Yeah, so that's why I think it's time has passed. So I, I that's but but I agree in terms of what you just said. It seems like it would be only a few weeks, but how quickly did they change from Clone Trooper to Storm? I don't know. Wait, let me let me put it to you this way. If I if I can remember this correctly, do we see clone troopers in snowy habitats ever in the episodes or the Clone Wars? I'm not sure. So maybe that's just what they look like when they go into those conditions. Uh, there is one episode. There is one episode where in those they're in those bad conditions. Oh wait, no, I'm thinking of bad bad. Well, they're, yeah. yeah, they're considered. What he's with is considered stormtroopers, but we don't. But when did that start? That's what we don't know. Yeah, we don't know what the transition was. I don't know if clone troopers automatically got called stormtroopers when things switched over to the Empire, or if all the clones died out and then they got regular, you know, infantry to be stormtroopers. I don't know. It could. I know in the story, Palpatine is racist, literally against races. Like he only wants the human race. So clones don't count as humans. So like in the empire, if you're a clone, you don't count. If you're any sort of alien, you don't count. You have to be a human. Right. Yeah. I think they are. So they are different. There's no clone troopers that become farm troopers. Yeah. I think that's interesting to track. I think it might be a little longer, but well, that's a question. Maybe bad bats will answer for us. Maybe not, but we'll see. But let's go ahead to our trackers now for, the last time in Clone Wars, we are going to bid farewell a couple of them along the way here. Padme Amidala gets captured seven times in the series, an average of once per season. She appeared only once in the season, though, so and it was over a hologram, so she did not have a chance to add to the count beat. Yeah, I thought she was going to get captured again, but we don't see her, so we don't we don't have a tracker for her this season, unfortunately. Yeah, it does not get updated. It was the only thing that got updated in season six, but nothing for season seven. Yeah, rest in peace, Padme. And the other tracker we are bidding a farewell to is Zero the Hut tracker. Five total appearances. He's died season three. And I thought it was fitting since we are bidding farewell to these trackers. We give them a little musical accompaniment. As they slowly fade off the screen into blackness. Padme, yes. For Zero, you better put like the cantina music. Happy music. <laughs> and farewell to our trackers there now we go to the ones that are going to carry are going to come with us on the ride to rebels in a couple of months so the tracker of the dark saber which we did not see this season but a surprise i was expecting that one to pop up the Darksaber still have five appearances. We have last saw it in Season 5, Episode 16, in the fight between Maul and Palpatine. Hondo has not appeared since Season 5, but he has made 10 appearances on the show. He'll be coming with us. Hondo is confirmed for Rebels. So he'll be coming along with the ride with us. And Bo-Katan picks up five appearances in Season 7. So she's up to nine appearances on the tracker. So Bo-Katan coming along for the ride with us. And what do you think? Do you think we'll see her again? I think we'll see her in Bad Batch. Yeah. You think we'll see her in Rebels? Yes. I would, so that that whole nugget's still sitting out there. I feel like Mandalore is too juicy then to avoid. Yep. And, and, and back to what I said earlier about Boba Fett, something yep. else I realized. Yep. He wasn't even named in The Empire Strikes Back. No. He didn't even have a name. He was the bounty hunter. Yeah. That's how cool he was. All right. 
Let's get to now our track, our MVP LV leaderboards heading into season seven. So right now, Anakin and Obi-Wan are tied at the top at plus five. Ahsoka and Palpatine right behind at plus four. Mr. Maul plus three. Count Dooku plus two. Yoda plus two as well. Rex, Cad Bane, Jar Jar, Mace Windu, Plo Koon, Bo-Katan, and Ventress are plus one. We have two and basically leveled out Padme and Rush at Savage at zero. Negative ones, Rush Clovis, Mibar Gascon, Lux Bonateri, Nali Vali, Bail Organa, thank you, Pete, Master Peel, The Father, Tarkin, Luminara, all minus one. The Writers, minus three. Minus four is the Jedi Council, the Droids as an entity, Investigator Douche, and bring up the rear, negative five, zero, the hut. And he is the right where he should be, Nick. Yeah, but I'm very worried about the next two minutes. All right, let's start at the MVP side of the board. Let's go around here. P, who is your first MVP? My first MVP is Mr. Maul. Have to give him the first MVP. He reminds me, if anyone listening likes the Avengers and the Marvel MCU, he reminds me of Ultron. He's a very smart villain. He makes a lot of sense. He makes you want to relate to him and want to join him and say, yeah, that's actually a pretty good idea. We probably should join together to defeat Sidious. But then, oh, wait, you're a bad guy. So, so yeah, I have to give it to Mr. Maul, especially for his hallway scene. So one point to him. Nick, where are you going? Also, to Maul, he, he's awesome. I mentioned earlier, they took a character that died. They brought back and people were like, wait, Darth Maul's alive? Like, if you never watched Clone Wars, which you guys hadn't before the show, you're like, they brought Darth Maul back? Like, what is that? Like, you think it's childish kind of thing? And they turned that childish move into an amazing, amazing character. Yeah, I'm also going to make it three for three of Mr. Maul because, again, brilliant plan. If this plan works, he potentially saves the galaxy from from Sidious. He might wreck it himself, but he does save that. He figures out Sidious's master plan with a lot less information than the Jedi Council has. He nope. figures everything out, and he also, as you said, he uses the whole way in the Force to destroy an entire legion of clones. So, major props to Maul. Speaking of Maul, did you realize that in his little scene where he's meeting with other leaders, he was meeting with Crimson Dawn leaders? I, I thought that it. was very interesting considering Solo's 10 years away and no more than two years ago in chronological time was he the leader of the Shadow Collective. So yeah. how did that change so quickly? I thought that was a little like they tried too hard to connect it to Solo when it still should have been the Shadow Collective at that time. Yeah, maybe. If you didn't notice, if you didn't notice, Dryden Voss was in the background there as a hologram. Yeah. The one who um, who's the one who plays Vision, Paul Bettany. Yeah. The one who plays, the one he plays, he's in the He's there for a second when he's talking with the other leaders. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe the comic book that, that the, the Maul story has, maybe that explains some of that, but I didn't read that yet. So, I am sure it does, but I, I just feel like it's a little too soon for them to be switching names and hands and yeah. losing some of their alliances. All right, P, who's your second MVP? My second AV, it, AVP? Whoa. Oof. Rough night. Uh, my second MVP is Ahsoka Tano. Um, like I said, just strong non-Jedi Jedi, uh, you know, maturity levels off the chart. She, you know, as Nick has said time and time again, she goes from this like teenage girl to this, this, you know, mature woman who is actually trying to restore some sort of peace in a war that's going on that she kind of got thrown into as a Padawan. So I have to give her that second MVP point. 
I'm going to do the same for obviously for all shows of the finale arc. We obviously captures Maul, saves Rex from or, from the inheritor chip, Francis escape six or six six plus the underreported fact that the Marta sisters are dead if she is not there. They get themselves killed very easily. She saves their lives. So MVP for me, Nick. Are you adding the Soka train? I am, and I mean, I would assume. Well, based on what we've read and everything, Dave Filoni is in charge of this show, right? Yes. So, and incredible, he is—he understands perfectly how to develop a character, and there's no there's no argument that be made against it. Ahsoka, he just said it. She went from annoying, immature, looked like she was about like 14 years old in the beginning, although it was only supposed to be three years. She looks like she's like 20 now. I don't know, but she. It's a definition of character development. Her and Maul, too. Like, yeah. you have two characters that when they first get introduced or brought back, you're like, really? This person or that guy again? And now they're both fantastic Star Wars characters that I can't wait to see more of. All right. Those two, I think I had a feeling we're going to be queen sweep. So let's have some fun with the last one. So, P, who's your final one of the MVPs? I think this is going to be a sweep, too. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. My final MVP is Rex. Um, I really, I really like his character development and I really like the emotion he brings to this, to this, uh, last arc. I also think the fact that he, along with Ahsoka and along with, they kind of threw in a little bit of a droid arc, if you think about it, because the droids helped Ahsoka Tano a lot. Um, but they did in a way that's better than just having only droids. Um, he single-handedly is just wrecking clones <laughs> with Ahsoka's, obviously Ahsoka's doing most of the work because she's the force wielding person i don't know if that's how we're going to call a non-jedi who is a jedi um but yeah i have to give it to rex i have to give it to rex the last one all right nick where's your second one going or your last one rex. going? rex um same reasons i said for ahsoka and maul the same thing i've been saying since we started in season one dave filoni made us care about clones and he and he developed characters that we didn't think we would ever care about yeah, we didn't care about the clones at all when we watched episode two and episode three as teenagers. We didn't care about the clones at all when we watched the movie. We didn't care when we watched season one. We barely cared in season two, and now here we are in season seven, and we care deeply for Rex. All right, that's an interesting point. Like I not have him on my board, so he's not going to be a third clean sweep. So I had two options here. I'm trying to decide between because one's getting the arrow mentioning, one's getting the point, and I think. It depends if I want to give myself more work on the board by adding a new name to it or not. But I think I'm going to go with the new name here. I'm giving a point to the bad batch of the group. They had a very successful run in their four episodes. They came in as badasses. They rescue Echo. Without them, the Anaxis battle does not go the way of the Republic. And they just really kicked ass in the show. So I'll give them the bad batch the final MVP point of the Clone Wars. No, no issues with that. They, they set them up really nice. I think they did just enough to make the spinoff show for them. Yeah, the honorable mention was Bo-Katan for her role in orchestrating the Mandalore plan. But I think Ahsoka gets more of a credit, so that's why I did not give her the last one. I like it. Yeah, but yeah, I think I, I, I wanted to give something to Yoda, too, but he's like an honorable mention for me, just because I feel like everything that's wrong with the Jedi Council Yoda is better than them, as in that, like, when Windu goes citizen or whatever he says to Ahsoka, Yoda stays after the meeting to show, like, he's a good guy kind of thing, you know? Like, no one, I feel like no one has a problem with Yoda. He's a good, he's, he's an awesome dude. All right. Let's go to the LVPs, and I'm going to start this one off here. I'm giving the Martez sisters as a unit one LVP point because 
They, in terms of the non-droid division, they are right above Zero the Hut for the worst characters this show has created. They're both morons. They deal with the Pikes. I mean, you have Rafa has no idea what she's getting into with this group. Trace dumps the spices in the middle of hyperspace because that's the solution to the problem. In other words, they get rid of the cargo and not deal with it. They nearly get themselves killed five times over, and they're just annoying the entire arc. So, Bartez sisters first L- LVP. Pete, who's your first? Um, I'll agree with you. I'll agree with you. I think more Trace than Rafa. I think Rafa kind of knows what she's getting herself into, and she just plays it off as like, oh, we'll be fine. Does she, though? I, I think she does know that she was going to trade Spice with a crime syndicate, right? I mean, I think I think that was clear. I think the problems came in when Trace decided to be, you know, immature. It's like, I'm just going to dump the spice. Like, it, I, I think Trace, I, it's a combination for sure. But I think Rafa knows what she's doing and Trace is just kind of getting pulled along for the ride. So, but I do agree. I think the LVP goes to both of them. Nick, you want to jump on that one too? Yep, I agree. They suck. That's it. <laughs> they do suck. Now let's go to the second round of LVPs. Uh, Nick, since you didn't have much to add to this one, why don't you lead us off here? Okay. I'm very scared to do this because I, the Jedi council, which puts them in last place. Um, they showed time and time again, they can't be trusted. They've shown time and time again, they're going against their own code. They've shown time and time again, that they're not peace keepers of the peace. They're, they are soldiers, even though it's not what they say. And, just go against their own code and it pains me to do that because the fact that we're going to have someone ranked lower than zero the hud is is scary all right i'm gonna go ahead here i'm gonna spin off of that a little bit i'm gonna basically echo what pete said before i'm giving the lvp to directly mace windu because i feel like his attitude is so arrogant with ahsoka that this is exactly why she is not getting the information they need to save the galaxy because ahsoka captures maul for them as a private citizen, she did not have to do it. She could have just said, you know what, screw, like, screw you guys, live my own life. She does. She comes in, she grabs a Sith Lord for you. You don't trust her with your plan. She, he's arrogant. It's definitely the reason she decides, you know what, like, they're going to screw around. I'm going to tell him myself, and that delay costs them everything. So Mace Windu gets the LVP. Mike, can you change me to, to say the same thing? Because everything I said for the council also applies to Windu, and it just makes more sense. Yeah, Pete, what about you? What is your second LVP? Yeah, clean sweep for Windu. Um... Think about this. Ahsoka Tano is a Padawan that did not complete her training. And she brings in a Sith Lord. And not any Sith Lord. One that was supposed to be dead and came back and is probably the most intricate villain of Star Wars to come out of this franchise, in my opinion. I don't know why you don't tell her what's going on. I don't know why you don't trust her. I don't know why you have to treat her in that way. So I will give that LVP to Mace Window, Windu for sure. All right. So that's your that's our second one. And he goes from plus one to minus two, I think is well deserved. He should be the next after that. Oh yeah. All right. Last LVP P. Who are you who's your final one? So this might be a little bit weird, and you're gonna have to add a name to the board, and I apologize. I'm gonna go with Saxon. Who is Saxon? He is the uh, Gar Saxon is the mall-looking Boba Fett. He oh. is the Mandalorian who leader is leader of that crew. Leader of that crew. He looks like such a badass and does nothing. <laughs> nothing. Like, yes, okay. I understand he's not like Savage Opress. Okay, I know he's not going to be anything like that. But Bo-Katan, 
does so much more than the dude that literally looks like a Mandalorian mall. Like, how do you make a dude look so cool? And he sucks. Two episodes of really nothing extravagant. He just looks like a clone trooper in Mandalorian armor. That's yeah. that's to me what he looked like. So I have to give him an LVP because it was just very underwhelming for such a cool looking character. All right, Nick, who's your last LVP? So this is very tough for me. I don't have a very good answer here because I have one I could give you if you want, if you're struggling for one. All right. You know what? I have a few in my head. If it matches one of them, I will go with it. If not, I will say someone else. I had in my honorable mention board, Wat Tambor from the, I forget which, which I I think it's a techno union has it where he basically is the one is keeping echo prisoner. He's the guy with the weird thing on yes. his chest in episode two, and he just like goes out of frequency. Yes, because he's yeah he that guy, and like they capture Echo, Echo gets stolen from them, and then they say to him, "Should we tell the set the separatists this?" He's like, "Nah, we'll tell him later." He basically covers his own ass, and these and the general trench is acting on information that they think that Echo is still giving them. So his decision not to tell them crossed that whole battle. So that's why I would have Watt Tambor in the honorable mentions. I think. I'm going to break a tie here towards the top of the list. And I'm going to give an LVP to Anakin Skywalker because of what he's about to do and all those lives that he's about to take. And nothing he did in particularly wrong in the season, but we all know what he just, what he does. We've all seen it. Little children, hands, every separatist leader, which I guess was a good thing, killing all them, but I got to give it to him just because of the tragedy and how it went through and how his, his feelings led him to the dark side. I know Obi-Wan did something similar where like the opposite, how like, I think it was Ahsoka asked him to come with him. And he, I I wanted to knock him for that. I was thinking giving it to Obi-Wan because Ahsoka asked him and he was like, no, we have our thing to the council. And it's like, Obi-Wan sticking to the book so much. Like he could, he should be able to say that the council is, gone wrong like Qui-Gon Jinn did and he doesn't see it and he's so by the book that even when he's doing things that's wrong he does it anyway you know for sure if Satine was still alive he'd be there though yeah he would and that's I was thinking of knocking him for that but I have I can't let genocide go unharmed yeah that's certainly fair I have the last LVP at the board here and I think I go a direction now that you're finally you're gonna love because the worst arc of the season was that arc with the Martez sisters and we find we know why the Martyr's life sucks. It's because Zero the Hut escaped from prison, and he got them and he gets them killed. So for making us suffer that that arc, Zero the Hut gets an LVP point from me to finish the series at minus six. I was really scared that we were all going to say the Jedi Council and they were going to go to minus seven, and I was going to have to give three to Zero the Hut to right? lose. Yeah, so Zero the Hut is the ultimate loser, minus six on the LVP board. Well deserved, honestly. Yeah, even off screen, he call, he screwed us. Yep. And, and to, to calculate the final MVP of the season of the Clone Wars, it was Ahsoka and a plus six on top of the board. Actually, plus seven. She was on top of the board. Yeah, seven. And then and then Obi Wan and Mister Maul are second, plus five each. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yes, yeah, Ahsoka and Maul, the two best characters of the season. Of the series. I, I, 
before we move on, I need to change something in my ranking because something is just glaring to me right now. What I said about Obi-Wan and Anakin, I want to flip that answer. Obi-Wan gets it for not not Anakin, putting Anakin tied with Maul up there, not Obi-Wan, because of his lack of vision in the Jedi Council and how his his, his blind trust. I really have to, to knock him for that. Indeed, and that's the end of the MVP LP board. We are going to wipe the whole thing clean for Rebels, so it's going to be a brand new board for Rebels. I will show you the final board when we go into Rebels, an example podcast here, but well, that piece of biz, we're going to rank our season rankings podcast. So as of right now, we have season six, season five on top of the board, then season six, then season four, then season two and three are tied. We have to break that tie today. And last season one followed by the movie. So first up, where are you putting season seven? Nick, I'll give I'm, you- put it, I'm putting it. I'm putting it on the top. You're putting number one. I'm putting a number one. I thought the last four episodes were better than half of the movies in Star Wars. Pete, where you want to put it? Yeah, exactly what Nick just said. I mean, without those four episodes, it may rank lower than season five. But that that those last four, like I said, that's episode three point five. That that has to bring it up to the top. Yeah, I'll go with you guys. I put it right at the top of the list, so that that's got to be there because. Season five, I thought about putting it higher. Then again, it has that eight episode run of of younglings and droids that just drags <laughs> it down to below them. So it's like everything season five worked so hard to achieve, it yeah. all paid off here. We got to yeah. see it in front of our eyes. Yes, it did. And we, we have to break the season two, three tie. So if you had to get give me a gut, Pete, where which one are you putting first of those two? You know, I'll be honest with you, I can't <laughs> can't even remember most of it but i would have to put three ahead of two only from a budget standpoint right they're getting more money the action is a little bit better the uh graphics are a little bit better that's going to be the tiebreaker for me not the content uh nick do, do you have any different thoughts no i agree i agree with pete um we talked about it earlier as this show went on as it aged it just got better. And, and I mean, there are some seasons that were worse than others. Sure. Like we all agree that six wasn't as good as five, but it was still pretty good. But the animation, the sound, everything just got better from CS season went on and three and two are pretty equal story wise. Then I have to give it to the production. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's put it there. We'll put three above two. So basically we go like each season gets better, except for five, five is better than six. That's the only difference we have. Pretty much. Yeah. All right, that's our Clone Wars coverage wrapped up. Coming up next, we're going to take a break before we do Rebels because, again, we just finished 130 episodes, not ready to do another, like, 60 or 70 of Rebels yet. So we're going to, later on, I think late July, early August, we're going to give, dive into the movie rankings of Star Wars, the live-action movie rankings. We are not going to include the Clone Wars movie because it would be a very obvious 12 of 12. Would you agree, yeah, I agree, but I also think that a lot of people are going to answer you that I never saw it. More than half the people that you ask out for are not going to say, probably 90% of the people you ask are saying, I've never seen it. Yeah, we'll, we'll acknowledge that like it's worse than anything is out there, so I don't think it's worth yeah. having that discussion. Right. And we cover it to death, Pete. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't need to relive the Zero of the Hut experience, so that's going to be officially like number 12. We're going to go for 1 through 11, so the other movies, I'm going to try and watch as many of them back as I can in the month between these records, so I think it's going to be a fun experiment to see how the people rank it. 
I think, Mike, I, I know some of your opinions already. I don't think I know for sure how you rank things, but I think I have a general idea. And I think you're going to see, uh, you're going to appreciate, especially episode two and three, but also one a lot more now that you've seen The Clone Wars. Yeah, it's like I'm going to watch, um, like I have to at least watch one to, th- to six again because I haven't seen one to three in probably in at least five years. So my question for you is when we're done with Rebels, are we going to be doing Star Wars Resistance? From what I've heard, it's terrible. I've seen three episodes. <laughs> Let put it this, put it that way. If I've only seen three episodes, how does that tell you it is? Well, I mean, I don't think they're very eager to dive back into that era of Star Wars, but they're now back in the only the OG trilogy era is good stuff mentality. Yeah, that was it. Was no, it was it was a really rough show. I don't I don't recommend watching even a minute of it. Yeah. So right now the plan is this. Then we're going to do Rebels, a season a month, and then we'll hopefully be right up on, on Book of Boba Fett. Perfect. Yeah, look at that. Guy just had armor in 1980, and now he has his own show. Now he does, and we will get into all of that soon. We want to thank you guys for coming on. Pete, how can people follow social media? I'll keep up with some of the stuff you're up to. Yeah, Twitter, at PJConstadori29. Just retweeted our Holy Moly special that we had not too long ago, so definitely check that out. Um, Stanley Cup Finals, Tampa Bay is up two games to nothing, so... Definitely check out those retweets. By the time we get this episode comes to your ears, the, the cup final might be over. Yeah, if there's a sweep, yeah. Yeah, and holy moly, I mean, we have not watched this episode tonight, but apparently they, they, they're viewing three new holes tonight, Pete. I, so, yes, I saw something with dinosaurs. Yeah. I don't know. So um, I try not to spoil it. Like, even though I watch them on Instagram, I try, if I see holy moly come up, I try to, like, scroll through it quickly because I don't want to spoil the episode. Um, but I did see a glimpse of dinosaurs. So that should be interesting. Yeah, Nick, I know you're not giving out your, your handle just yet, but do you watch Holy Moly? No, I actually was going to ask you. I don't even know what it is. Oh, it's it, it's so fun. So well, is, is on, I'm assuming it's on Disney Plus? It's ABC. No, so it's on Hulu. Okay, I have Hulu. Um, there are only three episodes in, so you could definitely watch it. They also have season two still on Hulu. Season one's not there. I guess they didn't have the contract for it, only for like the live episodes. Have you ever watched the show Wipeout? No. Okay, so Wipeout was a show of contestants that had to go through an obstacle course where they could fall into water, get hit by foam objects. And it was just a funny kind of obstacle course show that was adapted to, I believe, I could be getting the country wrong, but I think it was a Japanese game show. Could be wrong on the country. But it was some sort of Asian game show that they adapted to the U.S. called Wipeout. Well, they've taken those obstacles and they've put it on mini golf courses and they've made extreme mini golf. And Joe Tessitore and Rob Riggle are the uh, announcers and color annou- color commentators. I know, and- Joe, I, know um, I know Rob. I don't know if I know just Joe. He used to Tessitore. do money football. Yeah. He used to- All right. Maybe I know his voice. Yeah. yeah. And um, they do extreme mini golf. And it's his. It sounds fun. So, what you said, ABC? ABC is on Thursday nights at nine o'clock, the new episodes. Hulu has all the old ones, and it's yeah, so tomorrow- fun have the uh fridays they have the so, dumb question if it's abc why would it not be on disney plus because it's they're just in contact with hulu don't they own hulu too yeah they put they put it on there because i don't think okay because they keep some stuff on hulu like that's one that goes there right. I, feel okay. like disney, I feel like disney plus doesn't have the shows that are still running yes that makes sense. Like Good Doctor is ABC. It's still running. So all those episodes go to Hulu. Yeah, unless it's an original. I think yeah. The Rookie is on is ABC as well. It's, it's still it's on Hulu. 
Same thing with Holy Moly. So it's the rookie that police show. Yes. Correct. Yep. Yep. And I also don't, I also, are you, have you ever seen Curb Your Enthusiasm, Nick? Are you a big Curb guy? Oh, you know the answer to that. Come yeah. on, Mike. Yeah. So like basically. Like I'm, I am the biggest Curb fan in the world. Yeah. So Steph Curry is also part of the show. He basically plays the Curb Your Enthusiasm version of Steph Curry, where he's trying to take extreme mini golf and make it a professional sport. So that's a lot of fun as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll definitely try it out if I can find a way to get the first season. You don't, you, you, don't, you don't even need the first season. Like season don't two, season two is fun in its own right. Well, there's no, I would assume there's no like story. I can just watch any episode now. You could you could you watch could season three and understand it. It's yeah. just knowing the progression of how the show has been going. That's when you need season one, season two. You don't even need you don't need one. Trust me on that. Say season two, the finale is really funny. Yes. And you'll understand if you do watch it through, you'll understand why it's funny. Cause it's like, how funny can extreme mini golf be? If you can give it a shot, watch the first episode of season two, see how it is. I think you'll thoroughly enjoy it. Yeah. Cause season one is, is basically they're figuring things out. Season two, they change the format now. So the way that works is every episode, somebody wins and they go to the finale of the season. And then all the winners of the season come back and Pete for a chance with $250,000. That sounds cool. All right, man. So check that out. Thanks again, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. We finally did it. All right. That will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Kevin Walsh Jr., for hopping on. Talk about the NBA Finals. It'll be an interesting series with Phoenix and Milwaukee. See what happens there. Get a long championship chat broken in the NBA because Phoenix has never won. Milwaukee hasn't won since the 1970s. Want to get some new blood in the title mix. I just want to thank the Sky Guys themselves, Pete Considore and Nick Friday. I just heard them. Breaking down seasons out of the Clone Wars. Again, looking forward to getting to the movie rankings. I'm going to attach a Google form to this podcast with the list for the movie rankings. If you want to get your vote in and be part of the movie rankings list, let us know. Submit those rankings so you can be part of that podcast at the end of the month. If you want more stuff like this podcast, including my look at what the Knicks could put together in terms of a Daniel or trade package. And the more I think about it, the more I want them to do it. I think if you have a chance to get one of the five or ten best players in the NBA, you do it. Check out the blog over justsendthesuffering.wordpress.com. You'll subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just End the Suffering, your favorite podcast platform. You can find all our episodes there. Feel free to your feedback and star rank as well. That with the podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on YouTube, Mike Phillips on YouTube, our individual conversations. Kevin's up there. The Sky Guys are up there as always. So check those out as well. So follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331 if you want to join in the fun. A lot of Met tweets, a lot of stuff going on here. That's all we're going to do for this week's show. Coming up next week, we're going to hit the All-Star break. Baseball B will be back. We're going to check in what's going on with the Mets and the Yankees, do some Black Widow and more. Until then, hope you have a better week than the Yankee fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.